Good morning, listeners, and welcome to a very special and somewhat emotional and sentimental episode of Riddles in the Dark, brought to you by the Mythgard Institute. I'm your co-host, Dave Kale, and the reason I'm saying sentimental is uh, this is the last one. Not the really the last episode. one, as Trish pointed out. This this uh, podcast is going to end just like Lord of the just like the Lord of the Rings trilogy, and probably like the Hobbit trilogy. It's going to end, and then it's going to end again, and then it's going to end again, and then it's <laughs> then there's going to be like a a ten minute sequence at the final ending, and then another ending, and then there'll be and an extended edition that'll come out with four more endings. <laughs> that's right. That's right. That's right. <laughs> so so really, it's never it's actually never going to end. Um, yeah. But uh, the podcast that won't die. Yeah, 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 yeah. The podcast that won't die, even despite me, despite many attempts to kill it. Uh, <laughs> uh, but but this this is a special. This is an ending of sorts, <laughs> much like many of the endings of the Lord of the Rings. This yes. is an ending of sorts. This is the last episode before the movie comes out. This is our last. This is the last episode. Oh, by the way, I'm also joined today by the Tolkien professor, Corey Olson and Trish Lambert, just in case you hadn't figured that out. <laughs> Might as well just go into this. Guys, this is our la- this is the last speculation episode of Girls in the Dark it's, ever. It's amazing. Ever. I mean, we, we uh speculating we, about the Hobbit, that is. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we 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 of course, started this. You know, the whole concept of this podcast was to be thinking through the Hobbit and the adaptation, and 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 you know, considering what's going to be happening in the in the films, and sort of using that as a as as an excuse to go through this material carefully and think about it a lot and talk about it. And so, yeah, I mean, this is the end of that road, as you say. It's not the total end of uh, everything to discuss, but um, but it's the end of 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 that road. And it's been a long road. I mean, it's been three years we've been doing this, so. Uh, it is uh, a remarkable day in that way. <laughs> Neil Ansai wants to know how long will the extended edition be? That'll oh, be a riddle. In the dark? Yeah, exactly. I, I, I can I can hear the sort of underlying horror in that question. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, because normally we're so terse and well edited, you know, that uh, 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 the extended edition, of course. And Corey keeps Corey keeps saying to me, "Well, the the you know the part when we where we where we crowdsource the uh, you know the right answers for the riddles, that'll only be like two episodes, right?" And I'm like. I don't think so. <laughs> I mean, I'm going to be surprised if we do it in four episodes, frankly. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. We'll see. Um, um, but uh, but yeah. So today we're kind of looking backwards. We don't have that much new to analyze as far as promotional materials go. They've been pretty stingy all along, and we've looked at the trailers and we looked briefly at the TV spots, um, and there's not much more there to discuss. So what what we really want to do today is think about sort of sending all of us off towards the films. We want to kind of review what we want to be thinking of, about um, and what, what, what we want to sort of ref- have fresh in our minds as we go and see the films. But first, actually, before we do that, we want to actually discuss seeing and talking about the films because, of course, having done all of this thinking about it, uh, in advance for the last several years. Uh, we want to be able to talk about it afterwards uh, as quickly as possible. Of course, the film has been released in many places already, um, and it uh, is being released in America this coming week. It is uh, currently Friday the 12th right now, and uh, it's going to be released this coming Tuesday or Tuesday night or Wednesday in America. So, um, 
the first thing I want to do is sort of talk about uh, when we want to, I, I would love to have a, maybe a couple sessions in which we can um, uh, kind of go over the film together. I was thinking, you know, maybe we'll do two. I know that some people aren't going to be able to get around to seeing it until the weekend. Um, so I, I want to have the opportunity both to be able to talk about it right away, because I certainly will want to talk about it right away, and then also to uh, um, to get together and talk about and, and sort of discuss at length with uh, more people who, who, you know, might not be able to see it until the weekend. So I'm thinking of a, a Saturday uh, session and, uh, you know, for next week and a... Uh, uh, and uh, a Wednesday session, maybe a f maybe do it on Thursday to make to give people the the whole of opening day to see it, and then maybe do a Thursday evening episode uh, next week, where I give my my impressions and you know hear from uh, you know from you guys and 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 talk with you guys about that, and then maybe we have another follow up session on Saturday that can be sort of a little bit broader. So that's. That's uh, that's sort of the plan. I want you just guys to sort of keep that in mind, and uh, you know we'll plan to we'll plan to get together to talk about the film uh, uh, next week. Of course, this is the first time we've had uh, our MythMood conference on opening weekend the last two times. So you know I have been you know in 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 the bosom of my friends and like-minded people to talk about the Hobbit film right away. You know for the last few years, and so it's going to be strange being. Uh, uh, you know, waiting for several weeks until we Breft. get together from so yeah, exactly. So we're gonna try to uh, uh, we're gonna we're 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 gonna try to you know fill in the gap and uh, uh, and do uh, you know do some of this stuff, some of this initial discussion virtually uh, there. So um, anyway, so I just wanted to mention that. Well, I'll post uh, uh, specific times and links and things for the sessions uh, uh, in the next few days, and I'll, we'll announce that on our social media streams and stuff. But just wanted we, to, we also yeah. have a topic in the uh, in the forums on Signum University's site, signumuniversity.org, um, called Mythgard in the Community. That's the name of the forum, and there's a topic in there about um, you know encouraging folks if they want to to use this. Uh, topic area to see if there's folks locally that you can get together with to go see the the movie. So it's called uh, it's Mythgard in the community, and the topic is called the Hobbit movie premiere 2014. So um, you know, if anybody wants to sort of see if there's anybody in their area, this is the place they could post uh, and and you know maybe get together with other Mythgardians to go watch the movie. Yeah, if there are people in New England who uh, would like to join me and my teenage nephews to see the midnight showing in Southern New Hampshire, uh, you'd be welcome to come. I'd be happy to to connect with you. Do we um, do we have any <laughs> listeners in Hong Kong who want to go watch it with me? <laughs> Is that where you're going to be? Yeah, I'm going to I'm I'm going to a conference in Shenzhen, uh, China, um, Monday through Thursday of next week. So and the conference ends on Wednesday the seventeenth, which is the first day that it's the which is the opening day in Hong Kong. So so I'm just as soon as the conference ends, I'm going to on Wednesday I'm gonna pack up my stuff, uh, catch the ferry back across the the channel 
to Hong Kong, and I'm flying out of Hong Kong Airport. So I got a hotel at at, at the Hong Kong at the Hong Kong uh, airport. <laughs> they have a hotel, and right next door they have a movie theater. So I just got oh my a, gosh! Yeah, so I got a hotel room in the the hotel next to the airport, and just bought a ticket last night to watch it on opening night at the airport. <laughs> you win! You yeah. win the prize for most interesting viewing of the third Hobbit yeah. movie. So if, if we have any listeners in Hong Kong who want to come over and watch it with me at the like the UA um, airport theater, let me know. I'm going to the 9:30 showing. <laughs> <laughs> All right, there we go. Mm-hmm. There we go. A unique yep. opportunity <laughs> to yeah. connect with Dave Kale in Asia in order to see uh, the Hobbit premiere. Yeah, so it's too, I, you should you should get in touch with the tomboy Tarsus if they want to fly. Yeah, I know. I, if I, I was if thinking I, about that too. Yeah, if I planned ahead far enough, I totally would have told him to come <laughs> come watch it with me. That would be hilarious. Yeah. Yeah, the reference is we, uh, we we just recorded last weekend uh, a guest episode. We were invited to appear, uh, all three of us, to appear on a on a on a on a podcast uh, run by a a, a two woman team <clears throat> who call themselves the Tomboy Tarts, and they they call themselves what the 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 most popular English speaking comedy uh, all female pod, all female. English speaking comedy podcast in Asia. Uh, <laughs> so many qualifies there. <laughs> yeah, which is great. Um, anyway, so uh, uh, we, we, we did their guest episode. It was funny. They had this whole script. We did this like radio theater thing. It was really funny. And uh, we'll, we'll definitely uh, let everybody know it's not out yet. So we'll let yeah, you guys know. When it's out. Yeah, their podcast requires some major hardcore editing. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yes, they 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 believe in high end production over there. Uh, 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 Versus on, our on home movie yeah. analog of a podcast. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. I gotta tell you though, uh, man, we were pretty fantastic. I do say so myself. I think we. I thought we were. I think we have a talent for this, guys. We really knocked the radio drama thing out of the park. I gotta tell you, yeah, I think yeah. I, I really think we were awesome. <laughs> Just based so, on their yeah. reaction, they were like, wow, you guys are really good at this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, this is pretty much uh, pretty much my acting level, I think, uh, you know, pretending to be sick. But anyway. <laughs> uh, yeah, we got to ride on an eagle and Corey got, got car sick. Motion got which is sick. funny because, yeah. of course, like, though they, I don't think they were to know this, but I do get terribly motion sick. So it was perfectly <laughs> – it was it was perfectly apt, and it was a role I was very comfortable uh, uh, playing. <laughs> Plenty of experience there. Not on riding eagles, exactly. But no. uh, Anyway. Anyway, so, okay, so, yeah, so we'll, we'll post about that, but let's, 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 let's think about our retrospective here. So, um, what do we feel needs to be, addre- in order for this film to be successful, what do we feel that it needs to address? Sort of thinking back over the major themes and topics that we have been not only talking about this year, but of course, you know, that it seems like each time, you know, for every film, there were things that we expected to see that they didn't get to. I mean, both of the first two films ended in a sense sooner than I expected, you know, um, Mm -hmm. you know, in that, I mean, I, I remember having the experience at the end of both of the films, like, man, they've left a whole lot to be covered in the rest of this. Um, so let's kind of review that. What are the things, you know, if this, Film were uh, uh, in what seems increasing what 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 would seem increasingly miraculous, um, successfully to tie up all of the things that it has brought up. What things would it have to address? Let's let's kind of go over those. Um, 
what are the first things that that come to mind for you guys? Um, well, since it was on the since it's on, it's on my brain since we were just talking about it before we went on the air. Um, the the enmity between the elves and the dwarves. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, it, it seems like something that that was just kind of put out there with very little, not a whole lot of explanation. I mean, we got some, but uh, but, well, but keep in mind also that some that we got was primarily in the uh, in the extended edition. Yeah. Remember, in the theatrical edition, they cut the scene which they put back in the extended edition in an unexpected journey during Bilbo's like Erebor retrospective at the beginning of the film. The scene where, like, the dwarves held out the the cask of gems and Thranduil reached out for it and then they snapped it closed in his face. And that's why he turn, her turn, turned around and left. Since they cut that snapping closed of the gem cask in his face scene, it made it look like Thranduil was just a pompous jerk and, like, walked away for no reason. And then his refusal to help Thorin was utterly inexplicable in the film. Right, right. And you know, at the time, I was saying, like, I'm sure that later on it will be explained that there's like, you know, an, a, a, another way of looking at this. Like, there, there's another side of this story, but it was really frustrating when the extended edition came out to learn that there was another side of the story originally in the film, and they cut it out. It's one of several really puzzling editing choices. By the way, there's a there's a this may show how totally inattentive I can be watching movies. Um, I noticed it when I rewatched the extended edition of Desolation of Smaug that um, when Thorin's been captured and he's having his tete-a-tete with, uh, with, right. with Thranduil, the other thing he brings up, I, I remembered from the theatrical version that he was throwing in, in Thranduil's face the fact that Thranduil didn't come to their aid um, yes. at the mountain. But in the extended edition when I listened to it, it's like, no, it's more than that. Apparently, they also came as refugees and yes. knocked on his door and asked for help, and Thranduil yes. turned him away. And I had missed that. I didn't know if it was in the oh. theatrical edition or not. Yes. So there was like a second insult that Thranduil had had you know had had thrown down to to the dwarves by not helping them as refugees, as well as not helping them during the dragon attack. Right, which is made the more point. I think we talked about this before. Made the more, which therefore puts more pressure on. Right. The reaction that they have to the people of Lake Town, you know, right. if they help the refugees right. at Lake Town, that's in a sense a second grievance or like a renewed grievance on Thorin's. Right. Yep. Um, and also, in a sense, another somewhat perverse justification for him to turn away Bard uh, and the people of Lake Town to be like, "Well, look, you know, you guys as refugees are you're not in the same position that I was in." Because like you've gotten help, we like we had to fend for ourselves. So like go back to your friends, you know the elves who are currently helping you. I'm not saying that that's a good or a noble thing to say, but at least I, I, but I could I, again with that context in the background of the former relationship between Thranduil and Thorin, I can see that being kind of seized upon as a justification by Thorin. Yeah, um, that's interesting, and all stuff that. All stuff that only people who've watched it in, the, or all stuff that people who've only watched it in the theater probably aren't aware of. Probably aren't aware. <laughs> of, yeah, yeah. yeah, no, it's very challenging. I, I mean, it's 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 another reason why I feel. I mean, I always feel and have felt from the beginning that um, I'm a really bad data point when it comes to like people saying like, do I think it's a good movie or not? Because I and I actually kind of feel that way almost any time. Um, 
I'm watching a film which is an adaptation of a book I know reasonably well uh, because there's so much of the plot that I will supply, you know, or so many unanswered questions which might completely puzzle a viewer who has not read the book, mm-hmm. um, but which makes sense to me because I know what they're getting at. You know, I know what they're trying to to depict, even if they're not depicting it successfully. So it's one of the things that I, you know, I, I, I never really feel like I have any kind of an objective sense uh, of the films in that way. Um, you know, I think, for instance, of the Harry Potter films, you know, like there were a bunch of times in the Harry Potter films when I was like, Okay, I'm following what's going on here, but I'm I'm pretty sure that I'm only following what's going on here because I know the books. If I didn't know the books, I don't yeah. think I would be following what's going on here at all. Um, so, well, and uh, the other thing is the people that only watch the theatrical versions, right? You know, exactly, and that's third, it's like, and that's a thing that I don't remember happening with the Lord of the Rings films. I think it, it, it's another thing that I would point to. Um, you know, in 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 uh, you know a, a pretty significant difference in the presentation between the Lord of the Rings films and the Hobbit films mm-hmm. is that the stuff that was added back, you know, in the extended edition, were were things which I really liked and and I was glad that they did, but I don't think any of them were really essential. You know, I don't think any of them really, you know. I don't recall ever having that experience of, oh, that's what that was about. Now I understand because I've seen the extended edition. I don't remember having that experience with the Lord of the Rings films. Right. Um, in fact, you know, the experience that I recall everybody talking about was, you know, watching the extended edition and saying, you know, wow, I'm really glad they edited these because these drag even more than the than the, <laughs> than they did in the theater. Um, you know, whatever. I'm my tolerance for length of film is pretty great so I didn't I was never yeah, you're right it. I mean this time around he's he embedded some what I felt like some pretty significant pieces of information in the extended bits yes yes exactly um, Carita makes a good point it's sort of a small thing um, but I agree it's one of those tantalizing things the the Thranduil's crazy face yeah. thing. Yeah. Um, you know, are we ever going to get any exp- is that ever going to come back again you know, are we? Is, yeah. Was that a throwaway, or or is that? Because if it was a throwaway, it was it was odd. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it, I it, know. It, what was the point if it's just going to be a throwaway? Well, I mean, it's not like I think it has no point on its own. I mean, you know, to say like he has, you know, it, 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 I, when I think of that scene on its own, right? You know, what does that scene suggest by itself? It it shows. Um, you know the point that Thranduil is making that is that he too has suffered, right? So it's t- you know it, it shows us that he is physically scarred, presumably emotionally scarred as well. But well, he's so, also specifically talking about in that time frame. He's talking about having fought the Northern Drakes. Right. He's talking about dragons. Yeah. yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Um, and um, and you know which means, of course, not only that he is scarred, you know, that he has been hurt uh, in the past. Um, but also that, uh, you know, it connects him with dragons, and so when we get to, like, dragon sickness stuff that has potentially interesting ramifications there, um, the fact also that he is in some way apparently magically concealing it, you know, it shows that Thranduil is is literally wearing a mask, right, that he's literally hiding behind a facade, Um we might have guessed that just from looking at his character, but we see that it is also literally true. Um, you know, it, it, that's a bit 
heavy-handed as far as symbolism is concerned, but symbolically that, you know, seems to work. So it's not like I don't feel like it has any function at all, but it's it was so salient. You know, I mean, it was one of the top ten things that people came out of that film saying, like, whoa, what was up with that, you know? And I feel like if you're going to have a moment which is just a throwaway, you know, which is really only intended for that kind of, like, symbolic character development thing then it shouldn't be one of the you know top things people emerge from the film saying, whoa, I wonder yeah. what the backstory was there but, if you're not planning to give the backstory. But again, I wonder, uh, the question I would have about that is, um, what is everyone asking that or is it just the really attentive, you know, obsessed, detail-obsessed and detail-oriented like book-type film um, fans? Um, is Joe Q. Public, was he really, did he really right. notice that in my, well, my my sense is probably not. I think they noticed it in this. I mean, because it was weird. I mean, yeah. it was one of the strange moments when, like, all of a sudden, Thranduil's face got like all bizarre. Um, so, I, I mean, I, I think it was certainly noticeable. It wasn't like a you know like a background detail. You would only <laughs> notice like, if you were looking Chris, up. Karita takes exception. Obsessed, detail oriented. Me, she says. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Um, um, uh, so, on the so on the going back to the dwarf elf enmity um, really yeah. quickly. Uh, um, let's see who was it. Oh, Michael Lucero had the good point. Have they played it up so much yeah, that that I reconciliation agree. seems unlikely? And, and and that's interesting because in one of the clips that they released um, uh, that during the live stream last week, there was a hint at this where where uh, Gand- uh, Gandalf comes riding into to what appears to be a camp. Uh, a yeah. mid-battle camp with Thorin and Bilbo, or uh, not Thorin, Thranduil and Bilbo's there and stuff. And Gandalf is saying, I'm worried about the dwarves. I think they're going to be overrun. They need your assistance. And basically Thranduil's like, yeah, not interested. Um, right. He basically says, I've, you know, I've already, a whole, a whole bunch of my people have already died. I'm not going to bother. Uh, you know, if you feel like saving them, you go right ahead. And, uh, you know, basically, and they say Thorin, what they're saying is Thorin needs to be warned. So it's not exactly clear which group of dwarves are about to be overrun, um, whether it's whether it's Thorin, who's who's already out in the battle and needs to be warned before he's overrun, or whether um, they want to warn Thorin about the other dwarves. It's, that's not clear, but what is clear is we're not going to have the cathartic uh-oh, here come the goblins, we'd better help, the, you know, okay, never mind, all this beef about treasure, not important, we need to get together. Like, they're going to be in the, battle, in the middle of the Battle of the Five Armies, still <laughs> holding grudges against each other, and making, right. you know, fairly foolish decisions about, I'm not going to help out the other guys. And that makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, I the the resolution, that moment where... All you know, where the three captains, Bard and Thranduil and Dan, all come together. You know, when Gandalf pops up in the middle and says, "Oh, you know, by the way, the goblins are attacking," and they're like, "Okay, we've actually already fired shots on each other, but eh, it's okay. Let's all just get together and 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 quickly strategize." I mean, it works. I like the way that it works in the book, but if again, it's another one of those moments where if you faithfully depicted exactly what Tolkien wrote, I think it would look stupid. And I have evidence to prove this. They did that in the Rankin-Bass version, and it looked really stupid. I mean, the only way they could do it, um, when Gandalf pops up in the Rankin-Bass version and says, the goblins are coming, and then, you know, basically, they, the, the only way that they 
can make it work for the three captains coming together is to make the three captains look both venial and stupid. Um, and that's what they do in the Rankin Beth. They basically they they make the three those three characters into laughing stocks, essentially, as they do with many of the characters in the Rankin Bass film. Um, but but again, you know, so you could say, well, maybe it could be done better than the Rankin Bass version. I certainly don't dispute that things could be done better than in the Rankin Bass version. But nevertheless, I do think that if you depict it, it would be really hard to yeah. make that emotionally convincing. That all of a sudden, from that, that they're really going to go from, you know, charging with a weapon in my hand to uh, bygones. Let's make allies. a plan. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, that's going to be so. So it doesn't surprise me. I mean, it seems to me a very, very natural thing. I mean, but I, you're right. The, the I, question is, where exactly do we go from yeah. there? Yeah, is solved by his death, right? How right. is how how are Thrain Duel's issues solved? Yeah, because presumably I, he's not going to die. I kind of, I in one sense I agree with you, but in another sense, um, in another sense, the idea, the idea that these guys are going to say. You know that hey, you know a significant part of the Allied forces are about to be overrun, which will probably be a major strategic blow in the battle against Sauron. We know at this point, Gandalf's like, hey everybody, it's Sauron, all right? Just so you know, it's Sauron. It's not just a bunch of goblins here to loot. This is the big bad guy here to destroy everybody. the The fact that they would still be squabbling in the face of Sauron seems a little like. Come on, how dumb can you be? Like they, I think right. they I think they run the risk of making them look ridiculous the other direction, which is stubborn to the point of self-destruction. Right. Right. So yeah. I, I don't know yeah. how to do it, but uh but I hope it doesn't last too long because I think that would also look really stupid. Right. No, that's certainly true. I mean, there is certain, definitely the danger of, of error on the other side. <clears throat> I mean, my sense from the first two films is that basically this is what this is the role that Legolas, to some extent, and Toriel, to a much greater extent, are designed to play. I see. You know, Toriel has been the liaison between the elves and the other races, especially the dwarves, from the beginning. That's why I didn't object to the Toriel Kiwi thing. Although it was done in a campy way and the script wasn't good, it was nevertheless, like, conceptually, I really liked it, and I still really like it for exactly that reason. Yeah. Um, but. Uh, but anyway, it, it's uh, it, it. I, I, I. To me, it it seems like that that kind of has to happen. But how are they going to do? You know, Thorin. Thorin has his wake up experience on his deathbed. Where does you know Thranduil doesn't get a deathbed? Presumably, I don't know. But um, <laughs> who knows? Maybe was, they'll kill him. Maybe, maybe, maybe they'll kill him. I didn't even consider um, that possibility until just this moment. Yeah. I don't know, um, but um, uh, yeah. Does that yeah. seem possible? Mm, no, because it Does... would make Legolas king. Oh yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's true. And it, 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 he, he doesn't refer to Thranduil at any point in the Lord of the Rings films, but he also no one's running around saying King Legolas. So right, yeah. Exactly. I guess King Legolas wouldn't go on a quest either. Well, exactly. Yeah, you'd think that would come up at some point. Uh, several people, by the way, have supported what I was suggesting before, that um, non-Tolkien people definitely noticed the face thing. And uh, yeah, several people yeah, have right, said fine. that it's, it's, what they, it's like one of the first things that people came to them, assuming that like people who knew Tolkien would understand that reference. Um, which... <laughs> and, and, then and then being very disappointed. <laughs> right. Discover, right, exactly. Discover we're like, yeah, I don't know what the hell that is. 
<laughs> yeah, exactly. No, I mean, I, I, I've gotten that a bunch of times too. Uh, but anyway, yeah. So that's no. So I agree. So these are these are big these are big questions, and 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 you know, sort of folded into that. Then, of course, is the resolution of the you know Toriel Legolas story, and I don't mean like the relationship between Toriel and Legolas. I just mean sort of where their characters are. You know, what exactly is the end of the character arcs of of, of Toriel and Legolas, and what role do they play? in the ultimate reconciliation because I am and we are assuming that there is an ultimate reconciliation that's of course Dave the other option right maybe there's mm -hmm. no reconciliation you know maybe yeah. it's still th things are still frosty between you know the wood and the mountain at the end of the film that's conceivable also and it would seem to just it would that choice would seem justified by the frostiness that obviously remains in the Council of Elrond in the Fellowship of the Ring film so maybe that's the direction they're going to go um, but anyway, um, okay. Uh, other, other, other issues, other non-elf related issue, or I mean, I guess we don't want to exclude elves entirely, but other, other, other things that we're looking at that we, that we would want them to tie together or to close up. Of course, one big one that we've been talking about recently, ever since the main trailer, is the Sauron's master plan uh, subplot. Ah, um, uh, yes. Uh, what the heck is Sauron's master plan? God, yeah. I, I really hope they find some way to make this whole thing make sense, uh, uh, and yet it seems unlikely given how well, nonsensical it is and how much ex on-screen exposition that's going to require mid-battle. Exactly. See, <laughs> I, I don't think that conceptually it's difficult to make sense of it. Um, I'm, all right, I mean, all right, I Corey. Think... What's Sauron's master plan? Okay, here's Sauron's master plan. Um, Sauron's master plan is uh, <laughs> that he, his, so he, was, he was building power in Dol Guldur. And he was building power in Dol Guldur for two reasons. Reason number one, he didn't want to build power, go back to, to, to Mordor and Barad-dûr to rebuild his power because that would have been really obvious. I mean, that would have been, you know, a, a, you know really setting out his shingle, you know, Sauron is open for business again. Like, and he didn't want to do that. He was trying to conceal himself from the White Council, so he set up shop in a new place. But he didn't just choose any random place. He chose this place in Mirkwood because of its strategic location. That is, the way that it is positioned between Lorien and, uh, and uh, Mirkwood so that he could divide. Those are the only two active forces of elves on the, uh, on the eastern side of the, of the Misty Mountains. Um, so he could divide them. Mm -hmm. Gondor, of course, if he's not in Mordor, Gondor could just be taken care of later. You know, he doesn't, you know, Gondor, you know, considers itself the, you know, the guardians, you know, the march wardens of, of, of the West. But of course, that's only true if Sauron is fighting from Mordor. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. That's They're a camp north and, north and west of them. Who virtually cares? useless in this circumstance. He's already behind the lines, guys. Exactly. So he so he he skirts Gondor and makes them irrelevant. He splits the elves so that again, if he can maintain his secrecy, he can he can divide and conquer. Right? He can he could take one of them out before any of them knew what they were talking about. You know what was going on. So he would at worst only have to be facing one army of elves. Um, 
And then, of course, once he does that, once he takes out Lorien and Mirkwood and has ignored and basically marginalized Gondor, then all he would have to do is cross over with his army and mop up Rivendell and uh, the Grey Havens, neither of which has a, has, an ar- has a real army of its own. And so, therefore, Sauron wins. So that's the plan. That's the strategy. Now, this is this is something like this. Of course, I'm not, I'm 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 only making I'm only this is only about. 30% made up. Um, this does seem to be, you know, Tolkien seems to, you know, Gandalf in his words describing, um, you know, what would have happened had uh, the quest of Erebor not occurred in the bit that was left in the end of Appendix A suggests that this kind of thing was more or less Sauron's plan and that his plan was to use the dragon to come around and destroy uh, Rivendell. Um, Quite likely, at the same time that uh, that he was um, attacking, you know, that he was going to attack Lorien, mm-hmm. and it was probably Lorien that he was going to attack first. This is the part where I'm sort of trying to sort out how this ends up leading to the Battle of Five Armies, um, and uh, and and which I'm kind of hoping that Gandalf's comment about this is the final move in a master plan. I mean, the major criticism we had for that when we were talking about the trailer is that. This thing, like this concept of moving armies to the Lonely Mountain, makes no sense as part of the master plan because there is no sense in which Sauron's master plan would have included the death of Smaug, um, uh, you know, the quite unexpected death of Smaug. So, presumably, so then why, you know, as we've been saying, why would he plan to march on the mountain at all since his great ally was there and Lake Town is obviously not really a concern? Um, he's got to be, you know, so, so basically, the, the, the destination of where to march has to be changed. So I'm thinking the change that Peter... Now, now I believe that, you know, based on Gandalf's words in Appendix A, that Sauron's actual plan in Tolkien's books was to attack Lorien first. Um, In the films, because we are concerned with the Northern Theater, they seem to have altered that to Sauron's master plan being to attack Thranduil first, to to be attacking Mirkwood. That is the only sense I can make of a northward-marching orc army prior to Sauron receiving the news of the death of the dragon, because, of course, the army has set out before the dragon has, in fact, died. Mm. So... um, the only the only northward destination for an army of orcs from Dol Guldur that makes any sense at all is Mirkwood. And mm-hmm. then they're going to receive news of the death of Smaug. You know, tidings of the death of Smaug are going to go through the land like it's described in the book. It's going to be received by Azog on the march, who says, new plan, we're going to the Lonely Mountain uh, to claim the treasure and to head off the, uh, you know, and, and to prevent the dwarves from reconsolidating power at Erebor, um, which if they recover the Arkenstone, they're going to, and Sauron would recognize the risk of that. So the, so the actual march in the mountain is an improvisation from the master plan. So that's not actually the final stroke of the master plan. That's the only, so I, I, this stuff makes sense. If it succeeded, if his plan A had succeeded, presumably he's on the east side of the mountains mopping up elf armies piecemeal while Smaug crosses the mountains and uh, and destroys Rivendell single-handedly, which, again, Gandalf in Appendix A um, suggests Smaug would have been perfectly capable of doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and so, but now with the death of Smaug, he has to leave Rivendell behind, which means the death of Smaug is what enables Elrond to show up and to help. And why the White Council as a whole, instead of being uh, you know divided and in chaos and maybe partially dead, 
um, is able to band together and drive him out of Dol Guldur instead, leaving his armies all on their own, continuing their march up to the Lonely Mountain, where they will be annihilated by the perhaps imperfectly unified force of the elves, dwarves, and men. I So, I, can I make sense of the story? Yes. Do I think that can be made to work? Absolutely, I think it can be made to work. Do I think it's it follows the books? I think it follows the books like 80%. Um, do I think, am I confident that they are going to be able to convey all that effectively in the film? Dave, exactly as you said, no. That's, that's primarily my worry, is the amount of exposition that's going to be required. It's one of the primary places where I feel in watching these films, where I am most aware of the fact that I'm filling in gaps myself. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like the, the cryptic words that were dropped by the the orc that they captured, that Thranduil captured and decapitated, remember, uh, in the second film. His cryptic words about the world burning because the one is returned. Uh, you know, the, uh, it, it, like, I'm sure that, you know, most thoughtful and attentive non-Tolkien fan readers would figure out that that was Sauron just because they, you know, like the image of the great eye and everything from the previous films, like they would have guessed that. But there was a lot that I was consciously filling in around the corners with what they were figuring out was going on and what we could figure out was going on. Right. So... Um, and so, so yeah, I mean, are we going to get exposition? Are we going to, you know, it could happen. I mean, Gandalf coming up and, and, and being like, dude, I have to explain to you guys what's going on. Like that does give a justification for some exposition of this. So maybe they'll handle it. Um, but, uh, but yeah, will they, will they provide sufficient explanation so that it's re- it really makes sense? It really appears to hold together in the film that I'm not sh- certain of at all. Yeah. So there's my version of Sauron's master plan. I don't know if that's what's going to actually. actually, th- actually I, I, I think that makes sense. Because um, c- originally, as we've been conceiving it, Sauron's master plan has been March or just in our previous discussions, we made fun of of the of a of a hypothetical master plan that involved marching to the Lonely Mountain. Right. Exactly. And said that exactly. makes no sense. Why would he do that? But. Uh, I like your idea, which is Sauron says, all right, uh, Azog head for Thranduil's kingdom. And it totally makes sense in the context of the film. It makes sense that that the first step would be Thranduil. First of all, Thranduil is pretty – I guess it kind of logistically makes sense. I mean he's right over there. Why march directly right. to Rivendell? Um, also, Rivendell's not exactly – I guess, you know – Eventually, you might want to sail it with army, but it would make way more sense to just send Smaug. It's not like they, yeah. as to my understanding, Elrond doesn't have a massive gathering of um, elven armies, and and it's hidden, so uh, that that seems less feasible. But marching on Thranduil's kingdom makes sense, and in the context of the film, that makes sense because that's the character that's been brought up to us. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Lorien is Lorien. I mean, Galadriel's present, but Lorien oh, yeah. itself and Lorien. Yeah, Lorien. is beyond the margins of this film. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so. So. Total, so that I think that seems reasonable, and I really like the idea that they, that Azog on the way there gets the news about Smaug. Um, uh, um, you know, um, maybe gets word that um, I don't know. It'd be interesting to see. Does he get there and find that the elves have left? Uh, are already on their way to the Lonely Mountain. 
right. He goes to destroy the Elven armies uh, in Mirkwood and is like, oh, shoot, they're not home. But I don't know. Um, There's part of me that kind of likes the idea of Azog saying – finding out about the Smaug's death and Thorin having recaptured the mountain saying, all right, to heck with the elves. I don't care about any of this. Yeah, screw you, Sauron. I'm going. I'm going back to the original mission, Thorin Oakenshield. Right. Um, and right, then yeah. especially when he's that like, just goes rogue. Yeah. yeah, especially especially when he like tells like uh, his um, he tells his like his uh, um, deputy orc like, hey, can you get Sauron on the f- on the phone? Uh, he's not answering. Oh well. Uh, oh shoot, can't get a hold of him. So, oh, I don't, yeah. or he calls Sauron's like. I'm going through a tunnel. I can't hear you. Uh, <laughs> That's what's, right. What's that noise on the other end? Does that sound like fighting? Uh, it sounds like you're busy. All right. Well, I'll handle this situation. All right, guys. Lonely Mountain. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. Well, certainly Azog being motivated by the you know it, for him to discover if he if he discovers that that uh, the dwarves have returned because of course Bolg uh, and Bolg's messengers are going to be able to tell him that uh, the dwarves were there in Lake Town. Yes. So. If he hears then later that Smaug is dead, he's gonna, you know, that you know, the the line of Durin is there on the spot, and so you know, Azog in his in his uh, trying to fulfill his capacity as defiler with his not really fully explained vendetta against the line of Durin, uh, then uh, certainly he's not gonna want to have any of that. So yeah, whether or not it's uh, Sauron's objective B. Or whether it's just, as you say, Azog kind of going rogue and saying, "All right, I'm marching this army straight to the Lonely Mountain." Either way, I think I think that that works. Yeah, I I think that's pretty good. Now, like you say, whether this will be able to be communicated efficiently on screen, I don't know. But right. if they had, say, a Council of Elrond style scene where we could get lots of just in-depth discussion, it would be great. That would be because aw- that's what everybody loves in films is. Lots of times of people sitting around talking. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I think it'd be great. Uh, yeah, awesome. I, me too. More <laughs> exposition, the better, I say. <laughs> uh. <laughs> um, now, of course, the other the other element here, the other uh, uh, sort of strand of the Sauron story that needs to be wrapped up is the whole business of the return of the Nazgul and essentially the the declaration of Sauron, you know, because we do need to get to the, you know, the 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 the, the beating out the rugs in Barad-dur and uh, turning on the the eye-shaped beacon on top of the hill. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that, that needs to happen too by the end. Sauron um, returning to Mordor and declaring himself. One so one potential question this brings up related to that um, is uh, okay so so let's go with your 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 storyline here your your master plan explanation here um, uh, let's go with that uh, does this mean that and let's assume that Azog goes off the plan which I don't think Sauron would be too happy about and I'm not. Not even, you know, like I sort of in my my conception of Sauron as as exerting a lot of control over his slaves. Um, uh, although, you know, in the film, Azog's been, been presented as a fairly independent guy, but you know, Sauron tends to tends to have a pretty keeps keep his guys on a short leash. Should we? So let's assume Azog goes off the the plan. Uh, do you think this implies that Sauron will in fact actually be defeated at Dol Guldur? 
it seems if if he is doing a feint as he's presented in the book, like you know that this right. is all part of the plan. The White Council shows up maybe earlier than expected, but he, they they show up and he says, um, you know, um, uh, run whatever you know, like he's got a code word for his orcs about run the plan where we fake being defeated and then go to Mordor. Um, I don't right. know what that should be called. All right, all right, listeners, what should we call that? But uh, it's <laughs> like uh, let's launch. Operation Cannon Fodder. Yeah. You guys all stay here and die <laughs> yeah. while I go away and yeah. make it look like they defeated us. Yeah, let's because call they're it... actually going to defeat you, but they're not really going to defeat me. Yeah. Let's call it Operation Noble Sacrifice. <laughs> That's right, it's a nice, noble like, sacrifice. Yeah, a nice like a nice like you know, uh, communist so- Soviet Union style sort of double talk thing. Noble sacrifice. Right. All you heroes yeah. go down with the ship. Um, <laughs> if he was, if he. Really, still in control. It, it seems unlikely that he would he would he would you know uh, um, uh, pull off the feint, emerge from the battle with the White Council, sort of rubbing his hands together. Oh, well, that man, that went better than I expected. Totally fell for it. All right, so where's my army? What? Well, what are they doing? What are you guys doing? I don't. I, it seems unlikely to say. Well, that's a actually maybe will maybe he'll just say. Oh, this whole day's just been a big. I'm just going back to Mordor. I'm just, I, you know what? I'm just gonna go back, take a shower, put on my pajamas, cook some, cook a microwave dinner, and, and just hot, hot call chocolate. A yeah. Um. So I'm wondering if maybe, in fact, he actually, if not actually defeated, he interferes somehow, or he's interfered with somehow, such that by the time he gets out of, by the time he 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 um escapes Dol Guldur, it's too late, and there's nothing he can do about the Lonely Mountain situation. It's just over. Right. I guess I would say two things. First is that I think that the um, when uh, the the idea of a feint comes, I mean, that's from Gandalf's words mm-hmm. um, when he says that he only feigned to flee. Um, and that he returned to Mordor, which had been long prepared. I don't think that Gandalf's words there necessarily mean that um, he actually was, like, that the White Council didn't drive him out at all, that he was completely faking being driven out by the White Council. I think what it suggests is that, like, basically Gandalf saying, we didn't kick his butt, like, he did succeed in making it look like we kicked his butt, but we didn't actually kick his butt. Yeah. But they did drive him out. You know, right. that basically, it's a shift from plan A to plan B, but Sauron, of course, is very wise. Like, he had laid alternative plans. He had intended all along to go back to Mordor and set himself oh, up. Oh, okay. Um, so so maybe he, maybe he had, you know, like, if, if, if the stars had aligned slightly differently, he might have actually, he, you know, there, he, maybe plan A was, let's see if I really can take them out here. Uh, and then the battle with the White Council and joined, and then he was like, ah, this is not going too well. Um, uh, but no worries, I've got my backup plan. Right, exactly. Um, you know, yeah, we'll just, we'll just regroup and go back to Mordor. But I, I, I especially in the film, so, you know, I think you can make an argument even from the books that that's kind of what he yeah. was doing. You know, that he was, um, you know, it was eventually his plan to go back to Mordor, um, it wasn't like a, I mean, because to say that he was faking it and like what actually happened was actually Sauron's plan all along 
is to say that Sauron had planned for the White Council to attack him, and that doesn't seem to make any sense at all to me, actually. Like, in as much as without the ring, he is indeed vulnerable to the White Council, though that the collected effort of the White Council probably could uh, overcome him um, prior to, you know, at that point and prior to his recovery of the ring. That I can't imagine that his actual in the book master plan involved the White Council attacking Dol Guldur. Mm-hmm. Um, but so I do I do suspect that the timing of his removal from Dol Guldur to uh, Mordor was determined by the fact that the White Council attacked, and he's like, well, okay, let's step up the schedule. I guess now's the time when I go back to to Mordor. But he had, of course, been preparing that. You know, right, all along anyway. Okay. Um, so in that sense, he's feigning to flee. He wasn't actually, he didn't get his butt kicked, but he, you know, at that point decided to withdraw because the White Council was coming after him, and he's like, all right, let's move on to the next phase of the plan. But it does leave the possibility open that because that timing was not chosen by him but by the White Council, there was some element of, like, the previous phase of his operation that was frustrated or whose timetable was shifted. And again, given Gandalf's comments in Appendix A about coordination with Smaug, it seems likely that, um, in fact, he was planning to run Mirkwood-based operations um, in conjunction with Smaug, and that the combination of the death of Smaug and the intervention of the White Council, which, remember, even in the book, happens at the same time, um, uh, that those things did, in fact, to some extent, thwart, uh, you know, one phase of his, if not throw a wrench in his entire plan, still mm-hmm. did thwart one phase of it and just make him step up phase two, which is the return to Mordor uh, and running operations from there. Um, so yeah, That makes sense. Uh, I, so, I accept that. Yeah. And again, and it makes a lot of sense that in the movie, they would really choose to emphasize that mm-hmm. because, you know, they want to they wanna be foregrounding. His, so therefore, I would expect his flight from Dog Oldor to be genuinely a flight. You know, that he is, that he, he's not been defeated, but that he has been, and I suspect that what this would mean is that the, the Nazgul are driven to flight so that he is left standing alone against the White Council, and then he is like, mm, nah, I'm going to leave. Uh, and then, um, but, you know, you know, Trish, I'm thinking of your comments about Saruman last time, and to what extent we might have an actual, right. you know, deal being made, or, or some kind of, uh, you know, private conversation between, so that Saruman right. is the one who comes back and is like, yeah, I basically mopped the floor with that loser, and, uh, and they're all like, wow, Saruman, you're so awesome. And uh, <laughs> the necromancer is defeated. Um, but, of course, that that's part of the part of that. Basically, Saruman ends up, in a sense, covering Colluding. his retreat. Yeah. yeah, right. Right, right after he uh, runs right after a blade right through Radagast's back. <laughs> See, yeah, because Radagast See, that's, that's another this. loose end. He's got an off Radagast. Radagast He's yeah. got to off Radagast uh, in order to prevent him. Yes, yeah, so that's where that, that's this ultimately is why he mm-hmm. uh, he uh, let, kills Radagast. Let, let me ask you this, Corey. Um, uh, how wh- how do you feel? Suppose we get a scene. Um, uh, uh, all right. So suppose we get that scene of of Saruman in fact letting uh, Sauron go. Um, 
you know, like like uh, clearly on screen sort of maybe there's not direct communication. Hopefully there won't be like a five minute discussion, but just sort of Saruman doing something on screen such that it's clear that he's evil and that he's permitting Sauron to go or that he's fallen under the influence of Sauron or something. How are you guys going to do you guys do you think you'll like that or you think you're going to be annoyed? Do you want it to be more subtle or do you want there to do you want there to be a clear, you know, like Saruman? Um, Saruman from the Lord of the Rings films, clear collusion, like under the control of of Sauron. I I'm I'm a little ambivalent. I I kind of I don't think I want it to be that blatant yet. Yeah, um, it's hard. I'm divided because on the one hand, having an active Saruman turning to the dark side moment mm-hmm. is both a much cruder than yeah. what happens in the book, and be just fundamentally different in some pretty serious ways from what happens in the book. Um, it yeah. cheapens the whole um, the whole process of Sauron's or Saruman's fall. Yeah, that we get in the book, but on but two things. First, he already cheapened that um, in yeah, yeah, yeah. the <laughs> Fellowship of the Ring films. So. Like bygones. Secondly, <laughs> um, secondly, thinking about the see, this is one of the ways in which doing riddles of the dark has like trained me to think not just you know when I when I approach the films, not just approach the films and thinking like, but it's different from the book, but it's different from the book, but rather thinking about okay, we have this new artifact called the films, and the films, you know, within the world of the films. The films are all there is, right? Um, and given that, the idea of leaving Saruman, so Saruman stays good, you know, or ostensibly good, or mostly good, but kind of annoying, through the end of the third film. If that's what happens to the end of the third film, then basically the film world is choosing to leave the story of Saruman's fall completely untold. Mm-hmm. And we... And we will, again, within the film world, never receive any explanation of how exactly Saruman came to fall from head of the council to what we see in the film. Yeah, you're right. And that's unsatisfying. So my my dissatisfaction with that state of affairs outweighs my regrets for the cheapening of the story. Of the story, because again, it's it's that's already kind of happened, and and. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That cat, the cat's out of the bag on that. There's no point in exactly. complaining that, like, oh, that's really a dumb way to do it because they already get it. <laughs> right, right, exactly. They're, they're, um, they'll never. There's, there's no recovering from that scene in the Lord of the Rings where, where Saruman's conjuring the, uh, the, um, the, the, um, shoot, um, the Palantir, and like. Yeah. In his like weird trance of Sauron, Lord of the Earth, like yeah, we're done. It's already been cheapened. So why why exactly. why complain or why care? Um, exactly. Yeah, I think you're right. I think it would. I think I think it within the world of films, it needs to be explained on screen. So, but um, it does. does it need to be explicitly him making a deal? No. Does it need to be no, it um, it him be. being I, dominated, I like or can he just make a choice right. to sort of not not really pursue? Exactly. I like Michael Lucero's comment. Um, they could just have a Saruman ensnared scene instead of a turning to the dark side scene. 
I think that makes sense. That's mine. Basically. You know, like like him looking into the Palantir for the first time, and maybe right. or or looking to the Palantir at some point and seeing, maybe just from his face that something's happening. Right. You know. Right. Okay. Having maybe he okay. does talk to Sauron to Sauron, not in a like you know like uh, okay, uh, hey bud, we can talk behind the scenes now because nobody right. else is around kind of conversation, but. Basically, Sauron kind of planting seeds with him, mm -hmm. right? So we can see, you know, in, in using Michael's word, we can see him kind of being ensnared, and then maybe we get him like taking the cover off the Palantir and looking into the Palantir for the first time, you know, at the end of the film. Because, um, because in Fellowship of the Ring, we do see that scene where he's talking to Sauron in the Palantir, yes. you know, with his crazy yes. face. So, I mean, that would be a nice little connection and, and subtle enough where it's not, you know, it's not cheapening it further. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, what about um, suppose suppose Sauron? What if it? Uh, suppose. I mean, this is all we're like. I guess in asking this question, I'm presuming sort of will Saruman be in a position to hinder Sauron or even defeat him, which which seems somewhat unlikely. Um, what about the possibility of like of like. Um, uh, uh, Saruman being captured by Sauron and Sauron permitting Saruman to go. I can't see that happening because that prevents any real resolution of the White Council plot. Uh -huh. I mean, if the White Council is going to be... Re I mean, because basically... All right, so we're coming to rescue Gandalf, right? So Galadriel and Saruman and Elrond are descending upon Dol Guldur to rescue Gandalf and they succeed in rescuing Gandalf, and then they fight with Sauron, and Sauron captures Saruman and presumably takes off with them. Then presumably you've got Goadriel and Elrond rolling their eyes and being like, great, now we've got to go rescue Sauron. Um, so, like, the, and that couldn't happen off screen. Or, or, I mean, it could, but that would be awkward as anything. I mean, it, was, it would make that whole plot line just dangle in that way. So I can't see them stretching it out that way. Um, okay. Especially since, based on the evidence of, say, the, uh, um, as far as we can tell from the uh, soundtrack, we don't seem to return to a pure White Council sequence. Maybe mm -hmm. conversations, but not a sequence. Uh, you know, uh, a further story from them. So yeah, I, it's I, I basically got to be basically as soon as Gandalf get, wakes up, yeah. he's on yeah. the road again. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. Um, <laughs> Just thought of Willie Nelson. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's but right. do you think, I mean, does it seem absurd if if Saruman is in, actually in a position to hinder Sauron? Um, I don't know. I mean, it, it, it's, it does, I mean, it, it makes sense. I mean, you know, like, Saruman's like, leave him to me, I'll deal with him myself. So, like, off he goes. It could be from him that Sauron flees. You know, I mean, it's, it, it could actually, could not, it could, in that sense, not even be a feint. You know, it could actually appear to all of the White Council, possibly even including Saruman, that mm -hmm. he drove him away. Yeah. Um, maybe, maybe. Um, 
you know, maybe that's how they do it. Maybe he actually ends up thinking like, oh yeah, like I'm totally the man. Like I just, I just drove Sauron right out of here. And then he looks into the Palantir later on and right, uh, and because because he's confident, right? Right. Because wasn't that really didn't Tolkien? Wasn't that something Tolkien said? In fact, that Saruman was so prideful. Yes, yes, it's his arrogance that ultimately led him to do that, yeah. That led him to do that, yeah. And I could see that, you know, I mean, I maybe what we'll see is sort of almost like a ceremony on the brink right? In, in these movies, you know, not necessarily fallen yet, but pretty much ready to go. Yeah, yeah, that I can, I can, I can definitely see that. Um, but, but I, do, I just, I will be, you know, if, you know, as far as, so as far as things that I'm looking for, if we don't get any kind of a bridge between Hobbit Saruman and Fellowship of the Ring Saruman mm -hmm. at all. You'll be annoyed. I'm gonna, yeah, I, I will be annoyed. I will consider that a failure um, on that plot line. It's fodder definitely one for, of my things that has to for a new movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> the Fall of Saruman. The Fall of Saruman. The Adventures of Young Saruman, yes, exactly. Yeah, Adventures yeah. of Young Saruman. So, <laughs> so, so, here we have it again, actually, listeners. Actually, apologist Olson. If we do the Olsen. TV show Advent Adventures of Young or Aragorn, we could see. You know, if we do Adventures of Young Aragorn, the Fall of Saruman could be part of that TV series. There you go. That's <laughs> <laughs> the Young Air, the the Aragorn Chronicles. There you go. Um, yeah, uh, poor Tim Fisher, who has seen the film already and is just exploding. He must be bursting. I mean, like, I, I, I I'm, I'm, I'm really afraid that. Uh, Timothy Fisher is going to do himself an injury uh, over the course of this episode because he just it's it's hard. I'm sorry. I really apologize for putting you in this position, Tim. But hey, uh, you know what? Yeah. You know what? In your in people's zeal to see the film as early as possible, they watched it before the, we recorded this podcast and then come on live and listen. Hey, I know. it's on you. That's true. Yeah, yeah. yeah. If you is. really, if you yeah. really wanted to maximize your rules in the dark enjoyment, wait and watch it next week. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Of course, I'm saying uh, that, but I, I, there was a brief moment on Tuesday. You, you guys are lucky. I, I, we're all lucky. Um, on Tuesday when they were doing the the screening in Hollywood, I was busy writing an NSF grant proposal, and I didn't have time to get away. To go over Otherwise to the red. You right? Otherwise, yeah. I would have. And the people who were who were standing around at the red carpet of the screening got to go in and watch it. Uh. <laughs> yeah, I had a brief moment um, when I started seeing uh, as I was uh, up late um, uh, Tuesday, um, uh, uh, walk, working on my proposal. I was keeping an eye on Facebook, and some of my friends from LA started posting like, "Oh, just saw it. You know, it was great." And I was like. Oh God! Damn it! <laughs> but then again, I would have ruined riddles in the dark, so I'm glad I didn't. Right, right. Yeah, that would have been awkward. Yeah, that would have been awkward. We would have had to not have you. Yeah, I would have. I would have had to bow you. out. That's right. Yeah. It's true. It's true. Okay, so we've got we've got the elves, uh, and particularly the elves and the dwarves, mm -hmm. um, uh, with uh, the smaller things of uh, uh, you know, and the the whole issue of the reconciliation, and with the small issue of Thranduil's dragon face. Um, we have Sauron's master plan, uh, and how that's going to work into the conflict with the White Council, uh, and as side notes of that, uh, the 
explanation of the disappearance of Radagast by his presumable murder by Saruman and his uh, and Saruman's fall as two sort of side issues connected with that. Um, so that's what we've got so far. Of course, we haven't talked about Bilbo. Um, and the th major things, it seems, with Bilbo is first something we've been talking about a lot recently, of course, is Bilbo's relationship with the ring um, and where that's going to be headed and how that's going to be. Because, of course, the, um, the wall that they are aiming for, the cliff towards which they're driving, is the fact that they have to explain a 60-year gap. You know, we can't have... Um, so, so the two things that need to be accommodated to 60 years of not much happening um, are A, Gandalf's level of knowledge, and B, Bilbo's uh, being under the power of the ring, you know, mm -hmm. Bilbo's relationship with the ring. If, Bil if Bilbo feels that the ring is evil and is really uneasy about it, um, they have to give some explanation for why he continues to have it and has the relationship yeah. with it that he that we saw at the beginning in the Fellowship of the Ring continues film. Continues to have it, continues to wear to it and use that. it, doesn't say anything to Gandalf, doesn't say anything to yeah. anybody. Yeah. Yeah. Um put me exactly. put me in the put me in the um uh put me on the I'm just gonna I'm just gonna go on the record early and just say I I'm I'm of the opinion that they're not going to go out of their way to like, I, I think all of like the, the things that we've seen in the trailers where we've overanalyzed and said, Oh, I think what we're seeing is Bilbo's feeling comfortable. I don't buy any of it. I, I don't think they're going to go very far down this road in this film. Yeah. That's my, yeah. I, I'm, I'm just going on the, going on record now and saying that. That it's, they're just going to kind of slur it over. Yeah, well, because I just don't – I really I, – I think, one, it creates too many problems, as you're saying. Like, you know, it just seem, makes it absurd that nothing is done about this thing. Uh, right. And, two, it distracts from the film. Um, that, that, you know, like that, that all this – it's such a useful tool that we are – I know we're going to see him using it because there's, because there's the scene where Gandalf says Thorin must be warned and Bilbo says – um, yeah, that's okay. I'll, I can handle that. And Gandalf's like, you have no chance. You'll die. You're, you can't get up there. And Bilbo says, oh, sure I can. They won't get me. How are they not going to get him? Well, because he's going to be wearing his ring the whole time. So he's going to be putting his ring on and using it throughout the battle. Um, and, and so that scene where we see him like looking at the ring, taking a deep breath, putting it on, that's him taking a deep breath to put the ring on before he goes sprinting through the middle of a raging battle to go warn Thorin, right. I think. Right. So I, I just, you know, I, I, I don't want to... I just personally, emotionally, I don't want to be watching the film, watching Bilbo in the Battle of Five Armies, trying to focus on the drama of all that, the her his heroics and, and what he's doing and thinking, oh, God, don't put the ring on again. It's corrupting you. Right. I just right. Uh, I think it's too distracting. I just I, I don't want them to do that. And I and I don't think they will too much. And I agree. I mean, I I. I... It's hard. I mean, on the one hand, I want to say I do think they've gone too far. I, I, even in the context of doing The Hobbit from the Lord of the Rings point of view, yeah. as they're doing, even granting that, I mm -hmm. would still have made Bilbo's relationship with the ring more like it was in the book. Mm -hmm. um, because there's no reason it couldn't be like that at first. Right, yeah. Um, you know, the way that Tolkien retconned you know, the magic ring from the Hobbit into the ring of power works, you know, that it took a while for it to really get a grasp on Bilbo. And at first he was just like, it's a sweet, awesome magic ring. Like this is the coolest thing ever. And then it turns out that it, you know, that there's a 
price associated with it and that it has more significance than he knew. Um, I would have left it that way. I mean, I can understand I can understand their motivations for not doing it because they made such a big deal of the ring in the Lord of the Rings film that it would seem maybe you know that there I mean I do recognize that there's a chance that it could seem jarring mm -hmm. you know for Bilbo to be treating what everyone in the crowd will know is the ring of power as a trinket mm -hmm. but well, see this is this is one of the things I, I'm going to say about American filmmaking in general they feel i just sometimes feel in general american filmmakers think the audience is just stupid right. you know international films will leave things hanging they'll make subtle things they expect us to think about it jackson could you're right jackson doesn't need to hit us over the head with this thing he could have done something at the very end where bilbo's kind of like you know i can't say, it's like he he goes to put it on his mantelpiece and you know can't and puts it in his pocket and then we hear the black speech from the ring and that could have been it Right. But instead, you're right. Instead, we have to be hit over the head through the whole movie with this thing, which I just, it's, I almost feel insulted. Can you tell? Mm -hmm. I almost mm -hmm. feel insulted by it. Right. But, but I think that's just kind of American movie making in general. American movie makers seem to think American audiences have to be like spoon fed and, and, and reminded constantly of things. You know, and it just drives me nuts. Yeah, I agree with that general tendency. Um, and, it's one of the things that frustrates me about the medium. Um, I mean, there was a time when I was talking with people, and this was like before the Hobbit films even came out. Um, mm -hmm. You know, when I was talking with a couple different kinds of people um, about doing uh, like TV stuff. You know, as, as years ago, I was thinking like it'd be really fun to do like, you know, some TV documentaries on the story, you know, and, and, and in particular about like the adaptation of The Hobbit and stuff like that. And basically what I kept running into with everybody I talked to is like basically no nobody in America is gonna be is gonna do something like that. Because right. you know, it's just like the presumption is that like everything has to be so dumbed down that like nobody's <laughs> just gonna sit and like watch a documentary that actually just like talks about a book. You know, um, so anyway, it's I, so. I mean, I've I've kind of moved away from that entire thing because I, uh, I mean, I, you know, one of the convictions I've had ever since I started my podcast is that, um, you know, the movie and TV industry is wrong uh, to think this. Um, maybe they're not wrong in the aggregate. May, I mean, presumably they do know what sells best um, because they pay attention to that kind of thing. Um, yeah. I but guess. that's not my goal, you know. I, that's not what I'm interested in, you know. Uh, I, I am. I, I would be if I were ever doing such a thing. I would be more interested in, you know, making something that I thought was good and that was appreciated by many than something that would sell maximally to all. Um, but whatever. Anyway. And so by, yeah, and I, by the way, I should, you know, I mean, I understand that Jackson is from New Zealand and that the film was filmed in New Zealand, but it's still an American studio. It's still a Warner Brothers. Yeah. So yeah, they're I, the ones funding American, it, and still an American film. Yeah. I, now I, I'm going to take this 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 enforced break to make to make to say something that I want to say about about good. something that I think, with as far as Bilbo is concerned. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I know we've joked about it, you know, in terms of the auction scene when he comes home, and I know that that part of the movie's been filmed, and I know we also think it's not going to happen, but I. I would like to see the auction scene in the movie, not just because I'd love to see it, but because I think it's important that we see Bilbo sort of return back to the Bilbo that yes. we see in the prologue and in Fellowship of the Ring. 
And I think that's the that's the link, you know, where he comes back to the Shire, and there's still there's maybe a little comedic thing, but then we see Bilbo starting to go back to, you know, Bilbo of Bag End. Right, for him to return to Bag End and be comfortable there, though not right. quite the same as before. Right. You know, right. that's um, yes, yes, I agree that trajectory, and it has been that trajectory has been kind of fuddled by the ring trajectory, you know, by, mm-hmm. by the ring element that they've added in. Um, but uh, I assume, by the way, the voiceover that we keep getting in trailers of Bilbo talking about those who were dead, like the retrospective, like the eulogistic Bilbo voiceover that we get, right, of like, he'll always remember, you know, those that were lost and everything. You mm-hmm. remember the one I'm talking about? Yes, yeah. right, um, right. I, I'm assuming... That's at the end. Yes, I'm assuming that that's like a, a a statement from Bilbo either at the either before he leaves the Lonely Mountain or after he comes back to the Shire. That moment when Bilbo sings his song, the road go the roads go ever ever on song mm-hmm. um, in the Hobbit, you know, and and Gandalf says, "There's something the matter with you. You're not the Hobbit you used to be." I'm assuming, um, I. I suspect, that is, I should say, that there's going to be an analog to that moment when Gandalf and Bilbo have a conversation upon his return to the Shire. Whether it happens around, you know, the parlor table, as in the book, um, you know, which of course happens years later, but um, or whether it happens on the road as they're coming in or whatever. I assume that, and, and, and I would not be surprised to find that that voiceover from Bilbo is part of that, you know, Mm-hmm. And film end game conversation mm-hmm. and related directly Trish to that question yeah. of how he's yeah. changed upon his return. Hmm. Because um, we still have to get back to Ian Home, Bilbo. Yes, that you know, is we, true. We have we at this point in time we're not at that Bilbo yet. You know, right. so I'd, I, we need to send him back. That to is him. true. And certainly the Ian Home Bilbo we got at the beginning of the first Hobbit film was less. Right fun-loving and sprightly than the one that we got in yes, the Joseph sure. Ring film. Um, as, one assumes uh, that between the time he puts the book away and the time the party starts, he gets, you know... Right. He gets... Pulls himself like, together. You know, yeah, right. yeah. His, he All puts right. his party, party hat on. <laughs> yeah, I mean, one can smooth it out, but certainly, yeah, the, the, <laughs> what we saw of him uh, yeah. in, uh, in, in uh, An Unexpected Journey was different. Yes. Um, than what we saw of him there, but um, but yeah, I mean, I, I certainly agree. That's 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 another major thing. My the hope upon which I pin. Uh, well, okay, the the hook upon which I pin my hope, uh, or on on which I hang my hope, to be consistent with the metaphor, um, for a good resolution of that story, Trish is how much time they took with it in the unexpected journey. I mean, that's what everybody hated about the unexpected journey, right? Yeah. All the critics hated the long time in Bag End and that scene, which I think is brilliant and works really, really well when he wakes up and finds the dwarves missing and we get a quite shocking amount of screen time of Bilbo silently walking around Bag End and thinking. Um, and again, this is you know part of what was making so many of the film critics roll their eyes about how slow-moving that film was. I loved it, and that's what I loved about it. I loved the fact that they were spending so much time on Bilbo's character arc. That's why I thought I really like what they did with the Token Baggins thing in film one. Mm-hmm. Um, the ring plot, uh, you know, the ring element of Bilbo's character arc really took over 
in, a, in an unexpected journey, <clears throat> with which I was like a little bit okay because because the Bilbo character arc had come to a, a, a relatively satisfying conclusion at the end of the first film. Um, but I but I definitely want, need it to come back uh, in the third film, and so I, I have some hope that they're going to do that because they spent so much time with it in the first film, um, and because it would fit the shape of the original two film sequence that they had planned, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so the idea that the that the second film of three contain very little of this arc could easily be explained by the fact that originally the emphasis on this arc was weighted at the beginning and the beginning of the first film and the end of the second film that it was supposed to be you know a kind of frame for the story in that way with less emphasis on it in the middle part of that story that structure in a two film sequence would make a lot of sense to me and then when it was switched out to a three film sequence what you were left with was all middle, where we didn't get the, <laughs> the Bilbo plot trajectory really at all in the second film. So that's my hopeful scenario, Trish. But I, but it, it is definitely <laughs> another concern of mine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, you know, it's it's similar to Saruman. I mean, it's similar to you know how are we going to get you know align these characters up with how we see them in the Fellowship of the Ring? You know, we've talked before. I know y'all have talked about how. Maybe that's not that important, but I mean, it would be nice, I think, if we had a little bit seamlessness right. in the sense of the Saruman, the Bilbo, the you know, the Gandalf we see in Fellowship of the Ring. It follows from what we saw in The Hobbit. Right, mm-hmm. right. One last thing I would say, especially about the Ring thing, but thinking about continuity and stuff as well, <clears throat> you realize that uh, there's a there's there's an irony here which I can't forbear to point out. The biggest problem confronting Peter Jackson, with as far as Bilbo's character, especially as concerns the ring and Gandalf's knowledge of the ring, as we were discussing, is the one gap in time he hasn't taken out, which is the 60-year gap between the quest of Erebor and uh, Frodo's departure from Bag End. Every Every other gap has been taken out. The gap between the beginning of the darkening of Mirkwood and the quest of Erebor, the time between the the meeting of the White Council expressing their concerns about the necromancer to final action against the necromancer, even the 17-year gap between when Bilbo departs the Shire and when Frodo departs the Shire in the Fellowship of the Ring, all of those time gaps... Jackson vanishes them, right? Mm-hmm. The only time gap he doesn't make disappear completely is the sixty-year gap, um, right. and he keeps it accurately. He doesn't even con- he doesn't even compress it. It's sixty years, right? Just like in the book, and the fact that he's kept that gap um, is that that gap then becomes one of the biggest problems, one of the biggest challenges to continuity um, mm. and to the and to the cons- to the internal consistency of his story. And I, I think it's only fair to point out that some of that is Tolkien's fault. Um, it's one of the things, and I've said this before, when you look at Appendix B, you know, when you look at the tale of years, 
and you actually think about the numbers, right? You don't just read these things as because it's easy to read through the tale of years for people who do read through the tale of years. It's easy to read through the tale of years and just sort of get the sense of like this is a logical sequence of events, right? First this happened, then this, and then this, and this, and, this. and so you can get the story of the rise of Saruman again in the second half of the Third Age and the suspicions of Gandalf and the movements of the White Council, and then the quest of Erebor and the discovery of the Ring falls in, and it, it all works really well together. That's true unless you start paying attention to the numbers on the left-hand side of the page, right? If you actually think about the numbers and the amount of time that passes between those steps, mm -hmm. it's much, much harder. I mean, like, you have to confront the fact, okay, so Gandalf has been suspecting that the Necromancer was really Sauron returned for 400 years before this and didn't do I mean the, the the span of time between when Gandalf begins to suspect that maybe this necromancer guy is might be something right maybe this is something to worry about and the time when he actually goes in to uh, to the dungeons and discovers that it's Sauron is hundreds of years hundreds mm -hmm. of years is that gap what was Gandalf doing during that time? Why didn't he go earlier than that? Even the 90 years between when he discovers that it's Sauron and when the White Council actually does something. Now, Tolkien does give some explanation of this, right? That Sauron had said, oh, don't worry about it, don't worry about it, right? Um, but again, I mean, we joke about the fact that he's been carrying around the map and key for like 95 years. Um, but, uh, but, but again, I mean, like the, the, the spans of time that Tolkien has put into the overall uh, thing of the story, if you actually try to think of it on like a day-to-day, week-to-week, month-to-month level, what were these people doing with themselves? It gets hard. It really does. Mm -hmm. um, and again, Jackson's... Th I mean, it's true. If you look back at what Gandalf says in The Shadow of the Past, he says he was uneasy about Bilbo's ring from the beginning meaning 77 years before he made that statement to Frodo. Like, 77 years ago, I became suspicious about that ring. Um, like, and and, and the, the unasked question to Gandalf in that chapter is, why the heck did you do nothing about it decades earlier than this? You know, he says, like, I had other things to attend to. What did you have to attend to? <laughs> what were you doing? I mean, like, every day, seriously, like, you couldn't squeeze in an appointment any time in that 70-year span uh, to do... I mean, it's, 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 it's hard to really play it out. I mean, it works well in the tale of years, but yeah. if you really try to think of it as a contiguous narrative, it's hard. And yeah. so, again, the, the difficulty um, that Jackson has inherited with this 60-year gap, it is an inherited difficulty. And it's one that doesn't come up for as much scrutiny in the books, simply because it's easier not to pay attention right. to this kind of thing it in does. books, because we're not seeing it. Yeah, of course, it does right. beg the question, why not get rid of it? Why not get rid of the ring? No, or oh, why gap. not get rid of yeah. the gap? Yeah, well, he's gotten rid of every other, right? Yeah. Well, and I think the, the explanations for that have to be um, the change in actors, right? He, like the, the fact that he's doing young Bilbo, old Bilbo, so mm -hmm. a certain significant amount of time has to... I mean, he can't... You know, like, it, it, the 17-year gap vanishes, right? I mean, it's like 
how long is it? Like, when Gandalf leaves Frodo in the Fellowship of the Ring, makes his quick trip to Gondor, runs, you know, and, 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 and runs back having discovered the answer to his question after his really quite uh, deplorable uh, archive behavior uh, with his open cups and uh, open flames in the archives of Gondor. It still always makes me cringe watching Gandalf look at these ancient documents. But anyway, um, he comes back and 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 like no time has passed. So it's been like a, a week, maybe a couple weeks since the party, since Bilbo's departure, right? Yeah. Um, whereas it's 17 years in the book. So that 17 years vanishes. It utterly evaporates in the films. They couldn't evaporate it, right? I mean, he, some time has to pass because we have to, we can't have like Martin Freeman age Bilbo in the Fellowship of the Ring, right? Uh, there has to be this sense of like the next generation has come. Yeah. So he yeah, can't, yeah. he can't vanish it, right? He can't totally, he could have reduced it maybe, but he couldn't have reduced it to a point where it would have made sense. I mean, okay, it's only been 20 years, say. Um, 20 years later, well, still 20 years is a lot of time for nothing to happen, you know, for no progress to be made in either Bilbo's relationship with the ring or Gandalf's knowledge of the ring, um, especially on screen. Um, but, um, yeah, I don't know. Um, uh, <laughs> Karita is chiding me, saying that uh, an, an Ent wouldn't find any of these gaps at all extraordinary. Would in fact probably think that Gandalf had added with uh, with real precipitance, you know, in only taking a few hundred years between his suspicion and his actions. That's <laughs> um, <laughs> quite yeah. likely true. Aha! Aha! There's your explanation. What was he doing during that time? He made the mistake of stopping by uh, Fangorn Forest to ask Treebeard a question. Right. Yeah. I, I, you know, I, I, I also can't help but remember that line from The Return of the King when Gandalf is going to go hang out with Tom Bombadil, and he says, uh, uh, you know, he says, he's a moss gatherer, and I've been a stone doomed to rolling, right? So he's like, he's never really had a chance to just stop and smell the, mos the roses and hang out with Tom Bombadil. And then again, then I look at the tale of years, and I'm like, well, Gandalf, if you've been a rolling stone, you've been rolling awfully slowly down a very very shallow incline <laughs> because man um uh you, you're telling me you couldn't find a couple months in those 400 years to hang out with tom bombadil like really like that, that your schedule didn't allow that gandalf um but anyway i again i i here i'm sort of i'm 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 gently teasing uh uh tolkien's chronology here um but uh, uh, but anyway, so um, I don't think that that works out to like uh, you know unapologetic for yeah. for uh, for Jackson. I do um, suppose he still has to find a way to deal with this. But um, I do suppose but, uh, you know like he really he really couldn't have compressed that gap too much without it um, without it you know without the without sort of making it necessary to go to the next generation right like if it only been 10 years why didn't bilbo just take the ring right. um right you know exactly. and, and and where and and also where's frodo the when bilbo's going on his journey Right, um, exactly. Uh, I, barely any younger. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, no, it makes sense. And as you know, uh, Robert Brown points out, thinking of the books, uh, Robert is very right to say that Tolkien needed a new protagonist for the sequel because he said that Bilbo lived happily ever after. Um, yeah, exactly, exactly. I mean, Bilbo's story was done, and you know, and that 
that idea of Bilbo's story being, you know, like Bilbo volunteering to take the ring at the Council of Elrond, and you know, and then telling him like, no, your 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 story is done, um, you know, and Robert remember Bilbo even bringing up the fact that he had written the ending to his book, which said he lived happily after ever after till the end of his days, which is kind of a, pres a pres presumptuous thing to do when you're a hobbit and only fifty, right? But anyway. Um, uh, you know, he he's, thinks he's going to have to rewrite the ending for that reason. So, so Robert, yeah, you're right. I mean, that's that 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 is like explicitly raised within the Fellowship of the Ring, as uh, as sort of an issue with Bilbo there. But um, um, anyhow, so it's um, uh, it. I mean, it it could be shortened, but but even if you shortened it, again, you still have the problem. So, uh, I mean, I don't think any amount of shortening that would be plausible would would make this issue vanish completely. Therefore, Trish, this is, has been an extremely long way of saying I agree with you. Um, <laughs> I think that the likeliest thing is just that they're not—they're just going to kind of go from Bilbo with the ring in Bag End post-auction at the end, and then we'll return to Ian Holm and n not be invited to think very carefully about exactly why nothing has really changed in the 60 years that have happened. It's so annoying because he he puts so much, you know, attention on other details. Yeah. And yet there's this other stuff that just doesn't get attention and it you know, it's, I mean it's the same sort of thing as uh, you know, Thranduil's face. You know, right. I mean just like come on. It, if you're going to do it, do it, you know, pay attention to all of it anyway. Right. I'm sure I'll be talking about this more and probably even more ranting after I after you've it. After, after you've actually seen it. <laughs> yes. Yeah. 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 Um, but no, this is so. I, I don't know. It, to me, the biggest thing, Trish, thinking about this, are you know, I, I think that they could handle the ring by de-emphasizing it. You know, by by allowing it just to kind of, you know, drop like that, like you know, like you're suggesting. But the bigger question is then. Do they simply conceal yeah. it from yeah. Gandalf? Like the issue with Gandalf, yeah. we had it set up in that moment right at Bjorn's, right before Gandalf departs, when Bilbo almost you know that that scene worked great in the Desolation of Smaug. I thought it was fantastic, the one where Bilbo almost told right. Gandalf but then didn't, right? right? So and you know, that, I watched that again, by the way, and there actually is really no intimation that Gandalf is suspecting anything. I mean, I, when right. I watched it again, it's like, no, he really is kind of taking Bilbo at his word. You know what I mean? He's not, like, suspecting anything. I mean, he looks at his pocket, I guess, but there's no real right. mm, something's going on kind of thing. Right, exactly. Um, yeah, so, uh, I, I, but though he does seem, it does seem at least to sort of, like, Bilbo is acting strangely, you know, that is the sense that, that Bilbo is, is acting a little unusual here. Um, but certainly no indication, I agree, nothing that would lead Gandalf, movie Gandalf, to suspect there's like a ring of power involved. Um, so, but, but, but nevertheless, we have that scene. Is, are we going to get a complimentary scene? Are we going to come back to that at all? You know, is Bilbo, after everything is said and done, and he's traveling back to the Shire with Gandalf, assuming he travels back to the Shire with Gandalf, which I am assuming, um, are we going to get a scene uh, uh, where he either 
actually reveals the ring to Gandalf, or where again he tries and fails again. I, you know, but that seems to me that scene seems to me like a setup for something later. And Trish, that's what I can't reconcile with yeah. just the slurring over of the ring. Um, yeah. Yeah. Of the ring thing. I mean, or, or maybe again, maybe Gandalf is just like you know, we leave the film with Gandalf being like, hmm, yeah, yes, yeah, this ring looks a little weird. I'll have to think about this. You know, Tim, uh, Tim the, says we're either going to love or hate the uh, way he handles it in the, the film. I do, yes. Um, well, we'll see. We'll see. <laughs> we'll see. But I agree. That's that's a biggie. That's 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 a major thing that needs to you know that I'll be paying you know we'll be we'll be watching for. Um, Anything else? Anything else that we're forgetting? Well, of course, Erebor. We haven't talked about Thorin at all. Um, or the <laughs> oh, yeah. Erebor situation. Thorin. <laughs> um, uh, I well, guess he dies, right? He, yeah. This is this is this is the one. I guess. Yeah, the I hope they kill Thorin. <laughs> right, exactly. So long as they kill Thorin, we'll be satisfied. I mean, we just that's want right. to see the death of Thorin, and that's and and the deathbed scene with Bilbo. And the great and, line. That's right. Uh, hopefully, they use the same line. Or a or line. or a close variant of it. Or at close. Least. Yeah. Um, uh, but yeah, I I I, uh, um, <laughs> I. Though I have to say, actually, I don't think the original line would actually work that well in the film. In the context. Yeah. In the context of the, like I, I I'm I'm trying to imagine Richard Armitage's Thorin. Saying to Martin Freeman's Bill, calling Martin Freeman's Bilbo "child of the kindly West," and I'm like, eh, "That's that, true. It doesn't work." I mean, can you imagine Richard Armitage's Thorin saying mm-hmm. that? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, that phrase exactly. But anyhow, but you know, but but the rest of it, you know, the uh, you know, if if more of us value right. you know food and cheer, you know, and, and, and all that stuff, um, that I can that 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 part I can imagine. Um, but anyhow, um, I guess that's why we haven't talked about Thorin yet. Is that I'm like a lot less verklempt about the Thorin plot because yeah. it's for the trailers have made it really clear that we're we're getting you know we're getting a, a you know full on dragon sickness from Thorin. Um, I, I you know I'm still operating under the assumption that he is both going to die and have his deathbed scene. And therefore, I don't have many anxieties about the resolution of that story. Um, there's still the question, of course, of the future heir of Erebor, you know, and uh, who's going to live and who's going to die, and is Dan going to take over, or is Kiwi or is Fiwi going to live? Um, but, um, uh, but I, I, um, uh, I mean. Creators asked me why, why, why not? I see. Why, why can't I imagine Richard Armitage delivering that line? It just seems to me not in keeping with the way they've talked and with the way they've. The idea of film Thorin conceiving of Bilbo as a child of the West. It works in the book, but it's hard for me to imagine. Movie Thorin saying that not just because it's it's not exactly the idiom that they've been speaking in, but also just because that whole characterization of Bilbo as representative of the kindly West. Um, okay, here it is. I couldn't put my finger on it at first, Karita, but I'm glad you pushed because now I have the element that's there in the book, which is not in the film, 
um, is the idea of the, the frontier of the wild, capital W, right? In the book, you've got, you know, starting in the Shire, and then we're going off into the wild, and we go, like, by gradual stages into tame lands where there happen to be trolls to the lone lands where there aren't any people and things are a little scarier uh, to Rivendell, the last homely house before the wild, <clears throat> and then the stone giants and the goblins and wargs, and, you know, you're out of the frying pan and into the fire. That idea of the world becoming more and more wild and more and more dangerous as you move from west to east is a theme in the book, and it's recapitulated in the return, you know, in reverse, in the return, and, of course, it's emphasized especially at the return to Rivendell, and in particular in the songs that the elves sing to Bilbo when he returns to Rivendell, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that his view now is different. His view of the West is different. Um, think of the, the, the sort of view that Bilbo has from the Misty Mountains as he's crossing back and he's looking back over you know, all of the lands and Mirkwood spread out below him and everything, and he's thinking about the big picture. Bilbo has a very different point of view at the end than he had at the beginning. But that that dynamic in the book of the West being kindly and tame and the East, as you move East, it becoming increasingly wild. That's why the idea of Thorin calling Bilbo the child of the kindly West works in the book and makes sense because his true home is there in the East. When they, the dwarves, are crossing from the tame lands into the wild lands, they're not moving off into the frontier and into the unknown like Bilbo is. They're moving closer to their ancestral lands. They're going home. They're at home in the wild in, in a sense that Bilbo is not. Um, even though they, the dwarves, have been living even further west than Bilbo, even in The Hobbit that's clearly true, um, but that's that's not their real home. And even again, even in the even in the book, which emphasizes the, you know, Thorin and company as exiles uh, much, much less uh, than the Lord of the Rings does or than Appendix A does or than the film does. Nevertheless, there's still that element there. Um, and it just doesn't seem to work. I mean, that's why it strikes me that if Thorin says that line exactly in the movie, it won't seem to resonate. Yeah, yeah. Because that's yeah. not been a thing. Emphasized, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. So, what what do we think about yeah. the um, the Dal Guldur stuff? Do we feel uh, I, I know I'm moving away from Erebor now, but do we feel complete? I mean, do we feel like we've got our answers, or I mean, is there anything to wrap up there? I know there's been some things that I've. It, it's funny, Corey, because I totally am getting into your thing about not wanting to see spoilers, but there's some that I, I I'm like <laughs> I can't look away from. You know what I mean? I'm so I'm so aghast that I have to read it because I just bet I can't look away. It, and and some of them actually revolve around the Dol Guldur scene, um, yeah. but um, I it seems to me like the Nazgul question's been sort of from what I saw in the trailer. Okay, okay, that makes sense. You know, now with the the tombs being opened, and now we got the Nazgul, so that seems to be kind of tied up. Um, as far as like the three bearers of the ring, you know, the rings, the Elven rings. Yeah. I, I don't yeah. know. I'm assuming that's going to come up at Dol Guldur. Even though Sauron's not supposed to know about who has the rings. <clears throat> right. Though that always seemed to me like the worst kept secret in Middle Earth, right? You know. <laughs> Even uh, in the books, right? Yeah. <laughs> right. It, 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 yeah. Especially Galadriel, right? Like 
when Frodo outs Galadriel, right? When you know when he says like you know where Galadriel wears, and 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 Aragorn is like that should not have been said even to me. And I'm like, come on, Aragorn, you did never guess seriously. Like, I honestly like. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Well, the fact that both Lorien and Rivendell all seem to be sort of like in a little bubble. Right. Exactly. Kind of I mean, I mean, the I empirical guess... evidence is pretty is pretty overwhelming. In in fairness to in fairness to to. To Sauron, um, uh, uh, um, Galadriel does say he suspects, but he just doesn't know for sure right. yet. <laughs> right. So, right. Like, no, I mean, okay. So he's yeah, on to I'm them. Sure to <laughs> yeah, he he's on to them at least. At least he's like, hey, wait a minute. <laughs> Maybe, may hang. On. I bet they gave one of the elven rings to like the most powerful elf still in Middle Earth. They probably would have. Now, of course, if they'd want to be really cunning, they would have given them to like three random schmoes. Yeah, right? <laughs> it would have been like a you know like Haldir's brother has one of them, and uh, you know like Lindir the the. Uh, the the poetry critic in in uh, in, in Rivendell has one, and uh, you know, like one of the one of the dock hands at the Grey Havens has one. You know that would that would be like if you really want to hide them, that would be the most cunning way. But um, but no no no. <laughs> Caliborn. <laughs> Karina suggests they could have given it. Yeah, he never would have suspected that. Boy, yeah. that would have come out of nowhere. Oh man, talk about your dark horse candidates. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Erica suggests that the pointing elf has one of them. Yeah, you know exactly. Cal- if, you, if you really want to hide them, that's uh, oh, poor Caliborn. That's, that's, that's what you do. <laughs> poor Caliborn. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Then Sauron. Sauron. Yeah. When Sauron's having his like, he has a periodic con- con- uh, convening of like his like council of advisors. Um, you know, uh, asking like uh, the the Nazgul and some high-ranking orcs. All right, guys, let's go over this again. Who do you think has an has a ring? And then uh, and then one of the one of the one of the like orcs who's like trying to score a, a point at the meetings. Like, I don't, you know, we haven't really talked about Caliborn. What do you think about Caliborn? <laughs> Everybody just kind of pauses for a second, and then they it's all burst out silence. laughing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yep. Yep. <laughs> Oh yeah. Does uh, just you know completely random side note. Um, it does seem odd that Saruman wouldn't have passed along some information related to this. Yeah. Well, see, though, I wonder. Um, it's one of the things that's you know thinking back to our conversation before about um, disappointments with the Fellowship of the Ring film depiction of Saruman and the Palantir mm-hmm. and his relationship with Sauron. The thing that I one of the things that I really like about that in the books is that it's genuinely unclear um, what exactly the nature of the relationship between Saruman and Sauron is. You know that is it's it is clear <clears throat> that as Gandalf says, Saruman is setting himself up in rivalry and not yet. Um, you know, in service uh, oh, yeah, to, okay. to Sauron. So that, although, that would explain it. Although, Gandalf also describes with the Palantir that, you know, Saruman would have had to, you know, compelled to come in to report. And that's also obvious from Sauron's own words to Pippin in the Palantir. Why have you neglected to report for so long? Um, and uh, <clears throat> so... Uh, it's again. There's some genuine ambiguity there. Presumably, 
Saruman, if based on the actions that we see, him trying to claim the ring for himself, him setting up his own army in rivalry of Sauron, um, suggests that Saruman is still holding some things close to the chest, right? That he's not just... That's what I disliked most about the film depiction. You know, the, like, build me an army worthy of Mordor, the idea that he's just like, well, the boss said so, so I'm going to have to do it, really cheapened Saruman's character um, and made him merely into... A, a lieutenant of Mordor, um, which he's not quite yet in uh, um, in there. Gerald says, information is power. It seems like Saruman would keep some things to himself. I agree, exactly. Uh, true, good point. But could he... Uh, but if Sauron asked him and put pressure on him, you know, if Sauron had, you know, had the sort of mental contact he establishes through the Palantir with Saruman, and Sauron says tell me who wields the elven rings, could Saruman just be like, no, I'm not going to do it? That kind of defiance doesn't seem to be part of his relationship with Sauron. Um, uh, so anyway, it's, 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 it's interesting. Now, of course, he, Saruman, presumably doesn't know that Gandalf has one of them. If he did inform um, Sauron, he would have given misinformation. Um, and it's possible, maybe that's one of the things that's implied by Elrond when Elrond says, after Gandalf tells the story of the treachery of Saruman, and remember Elrond's response in the White Council is, um, this is grievous news that you give concerning Saruman. He is deep in all our councils. Um, that may be one of the things that he's implying. Like, great, so he's probably, you know, so he has probably confirmed that Gladriel and I, he's probably given away the worst kept secret in Middle-earth. Um, uh, you know, maybe. Um, Timothy's asking, you know, are Sauron and Saruman are both Maiar, uh, and so in a sense equal. Well, no, because not all Maiar are equal at all. Um, there are some very minor Maiar and some very great Maiar. Um, uh, so, no, the fact that they're both Maiar doesn't make them equal. But again, it's not, my question is not, would Saruman have been capable of refusing Sauron, but did he? The footing on which their relationship seems to stand, he would have to be in open rebellion against Sauron in order for him to refuse a direct order. I mean, Sauron would be ticked if if he uh, if he demanded, you know, or maybe he could have lied. Maybe he successfully lied or gave partial information or something in order to conceal something. But but that kind of like, no, I refuse to tell you that. Um, the whole all of the information that we have about the nature of their relationships suggests that Saruman was not in open defiance of Sauron, known to Sauron to be in open defiance of him. And that's why it was such a big deal <clears throat> to Saruman when the Nazgul show up at, at Isengard to collect Gandalf, and he doesn't have any Gandalf to send. As Gandalf projects um, in the Two Towers he's not going to have any captive to send, and he's going to appear to be a rebel um, even while he tries not to appear like a rebel. So again, from that I take it that he has not appeared to Sauron to be a rebel previously. Um, so, you know, and could he deceive, you know, Sauron? Would I, you know, I don't know, maybe. Maybe he's in some sense. But, but anyway, this is why, um, you know, but, but again, this is why I find the relationship between Sauron and Saruman so interesting, and the way it's done in the book is really subtle and interesting, and why I was so disappointed with that relationship in the film. But we're straying a little far afield now. 
Oh, I can't tolerate digression. You know, I gotta tell you, all the folks that listen to us while while in their car on commutes appreciate our digression. Yeah, just keep <laughs> just keep this thing going. Ten minutes until my destination. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Um, or for many people, it would last for a whole yeah, last for a whole week. <sighs> okay. All right. So. Um, I think that's it. Are there? Can any, can any of the listeners recall? Are there other major threads that we're leaving out? Um, I mean, I haven't. I mean, there are specific plot threads. I guess Bard. We haven't talked about Bard at all. Yeah, yeah. Um, Bard gonna. Sh- What's he gonna use to shoot down Smaug? That's the other thing that I've seen. Is apparently it looks like he may be using his longbow instead of the ballistic. Well, we know it's like, If he uses his longbow, why did they even bring the ballista up in the first yeah. place? Yeah, hey. I was willing to give them the black arrow thing. I'm told I, I I've been willing to give them that. I've been willing to give them that because the way because they've made Smaug so big, and since he's so much bigger than he apparently was in the books, then you know it's it's a logistical problem to kill him with a regular arrow. I, I, I'm I'm willing to grant that. I'm fine with that. Therefore, making the black you know keeping the black arrow idea and making it you know th- there's a lot to be said for what they did with the Black Arrow in the second film. Um, uh, you can say that it's a cheapening of the mythic uh, of the mythic nature of the Black Arrow from the book by just making it into like a particular kind of, you know, arrow. as like, a, you know, just a, a, a different, you know, not a special uh, arrow with mythical and magical overtones, but just like a different piece of equipment altogether. Um, I'm sympathetic to that argument against what they did, but I... To me, that's slightly countered by the fact that it also makes the Black Arrow a relic of the ancient uh, uh, skill of the dwarves, right? Um, and I kind of like that, you know. So basically, it it still, therefore, for me, has a mythic significance. It's just a different kind of mythic significance. It's tied to the history of Erebor uh, and uh, the skill in craftsmanship of the dwarves. So, you know, I to me, that's kind of a wash, and I'm fine with that. Um, but, um, man, I, I, I don't know. I've, I've been made uneasy by the fact that his longbow is so... Um, prominent. Prominent in the trailers. Uh. And it seems that it, that is beginning to look like a conspiracy and not a coincidence. So I, um, you know, I don't know. I don't know. But... Um, uh, but Bard's story. Suppose, suppose this is just out of left field. What if Bard is up on that thing, firing arrows, and yeah. buying time for Bane to get to the like the windless thing, to to fire the actual javelin? If Bane finds, if, I I love that actually. If Bane oh, kills the dragon. The black arrow, the black arrow in the movies has been portrayed as the ballista arrow, right? Yeah, 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 clearly. Yep. So yeah, no. If uh, if if Ban kills the dragon, I'll actually kind of love that. Um, yeah, that'd be cool. Actually, I have to admit. <laughs> Are they gonna proclaim him king? <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> Down with Bard. Up with. <laughs> Down with the Bowman's. With the Bowman's uh, dad. Uh, with the grim voiced dad. Yeah. Uh, up with the sweet faced kid who's much less depressing. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, um, 
uh, that would be cool. I, um, I mean, but to me, I don't feel like in the, the general category of things that we brought up at the beginning, you know, the category of mm-hmm. storylines that they need to tie up that we're a little concerned that they're not going to successfully tie up. To mm-hmm. me, the killing of the dragon, I'm not concerned about. Like, one way or other, it's going to happen. Like, that bard is going to be heroic and, uh, you know, intimately involved in the killing of the dragon. I'm not concerned about that. That doesn't seem to be difficult for them to do. That's not a plot line I'm worried about them tying up or that I think it's going to be difficult for them to tie up. Um, With Bard, the bigger question is going to be his relationship with the Elven King, his role in the Battle of Five Armies, his establishment, Mm -hmm. the reestablishment of Dale, and to what extent they're going to play the, you know, the sort of... I mean, in the book, what is more, much more explicitly a sort of a fairy tale thing, you know, a, uh, um, you know, I am the long lost heir of Gyrion, um, you know, who escaped from the sack of Dale. Um, you know, are they going to, uh, you know, the proclamation of him as king and how that's going to work with the master? Um, you know, I don't, um, I don't really see that, but I'm not especially concerned about it either. I mean, I don't. This doesn't strike me as a very difficult plot line to close up. I, you know, in in a sense, I feel the same way about it that I feel about the Thorin sequence. You know that like the trajectory it's on seems to me to make a lot of sense, and uh, I'm not, I I'm not, I don't have much anxiety about them closing the loop on that one. Hmm. Do you guys feel differently about that? No, I I don't either. I mean, no. I seems much less dilemma there. Yeah, I mean, yeah. and we, you know, the other one we haven't really talked about, but again, it's something we've talked about. I don't know. If we've closed the loop on it. Is the Feely? Uh, I mean, the Keely Tariel thing. Keely Tariel Legolas, I guess we could say. Right. Thing. Right. Um, but I don't know that there's much else to say other than we shall see. Right. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, uh, and the assumption that we've had since before the first film that they're all going to die except Legolas. Um, yeah. Uh, that, I mean, that Keely and Toriel are both going to die. Um, uh, yeah, I... Um, exactly what role it plays, where it falls in, and how, you know, who dies first. Are we going to get a... Are we going to get Toriel's death and then a grieving and ticked off and vengeful Kiwi going recklessly to his death in the battle afterwards? Are we going to get that kind of a sequence, or are they going to die protecting each other. You or know, is Tariel going to live? Somebody said that they thought, you know, there was, seemed to be some implication that she was going to live, which I still nah. don't No. <laughs> the only piece of evidence that you could take for Tariel's survival is the fact that she gets thrown up against a wall in the trailer. That is, you could argue that since she's so obviously terribly injured in the trailer, that that's misdirection. You know that right. uh, that yeah. she's not going to actually die because if she actually died, they wouldn't have shown that in the trailer. That kind of a perverse argument, perverse reading of the trailer, is the only justification I can see for that. I don't. I, I can't think of any other evidence that they've shown in anything they've released that suggests her survival. Right. Um, and 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 that argument I don't really buy. So. Um, uh, May asks, "What if uh, May uh, is it?" Uh, Quiles? Quiles? How, does, how, how, how do you do the Q-U in your name, May? Um, wait, you said yes. Which one? I said it both ways. Quiles? The first way I said it? Um, 
Uh, anyway, as as, <laughs> close close enough. Enough. Yeah. <laughs> as May says, uh, um, uh, what if Kiwi sacrifices himself for her and she lives? Nah. 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 <laughs> nope. <laughs> she's she's got to die. I'm sorry. That's not that's not enough. Um, uh, and I say this. I got you know. I say this. You know, I've I've been very open about the fact that I like I've liked Toriel since I first saw the second film. I like. Uh, I like what uh, Evangeline Lilly has done with her character. I like so I like the way it's been played. I like the way it's been it's been written into the story. I like the role that it plays in the overall shape of the plot. Um, I, yeah, I, we're not trying to kill her vindictively. Exactly right. <laughs> I, and I, I, mean, there, I think there are people who are in that camp, but uh, but that but that's not me. I'm not I'm not I'm not going there. I don't want there to be any mistake about that. I just think that um, would be a satisfying storyline. I I think. I think I think that's a satisfying, um, nice tragic Tolkien-esque tragic, you know, Turin yep. Turambar-esque tragic story. If um, Keeley and Tariel both die, and leave yeah. Legolas to mourn them, um, and then and and Tariel is sort of the original rebel. The hey, we should be out in the world making a difference, helping people, not you know, closeted up. Um, um, uh, that she she that her legacy is Legolas is showing up at the Council of Elrond and saying I'm going to go along on this quest and I'm going to help out the you know become friends with the son of one of the dwarves that we had a dispute with. Right. So I I think that's a that's a that's kind of a nice satisfying storyline that that it is she leaves an impact on the world like that so. Yeah yeah that's what it I, I I actually it makes sense to me to do it that way frankly and yep. not uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and I mean it's it's uh, yeah yeah no and and I think the tragedy really the tragedy really works. Uh, um, uh, Halstein is suggesting that uh, when the dwarfs and elves get to blows, uh, uh, one of them kills the other by mistake. Um, that would be uh, that would be like having the tragedy move in a in a downright Shakespearean direction, uh, which I think would would probably be too much. Um, uh, uh, Robert Brown suggests that they discover that they're actually siblings. Um, that would be moving <laughs> comedy in a very different. Now all of a sudden it would sound like an 18th century novel. Like, oh, it turns out, Keeley, you were adopted. You were actually a foundling. And uh, yeah, it's no, actually Star that's... Wars, isn't it? Right. Well, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. But I've said, yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, I've been reading 18th century literature recently. <laughs> Exactly. The, well, that, that's in fact precisely what happens uh, at the end. Not to you know give any spoilers for Joseph Andrews by Henry Fielding for those of you who haven't. Oh read yes, Joseph that's Andrews, right. Looking forward to reading Joseph Andrews, but I was just thinking um, about that book the other day. But that's what happens at the end of uh, of uh, Joseph Andrews. That the the hero and heroine who you know have been uh, uh, you know are, are in love and have had all these crosses to their getting married discover, you know, briefly believe themselves to be siblings uh, before the end and then discover them. Anyway, yeah, as Timothy Fisher points out, it's also Volsunga Saga. It's true. It would also be very Norse for them to... Though, you know, in a Norse saga, they would kill each other not in disguise. <laughs> like, they would just, they would just, they would know they, who they were, and they would, they would fight in the battle and kill each other anyway. Um, but anyhow. Okay. Um... <laughs> But no, 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 I don't think any of that's going to happen. I don't think it's, I think it's going to, um, um... Seems unlikely. No, 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 I think, um, but who dies first and how that happens? No, anyway, so, you know, I, it's, it's, um, it's, um, I, 
again, it, to me, it's in the category of I don't know exactly how they're going to resolve it, but it doesn't seem difficult to resolve. I mean, there are lots of possible ways. Um, somebody a little while ago brought up the question of the Roak plot. Um, I don't even want to talk about that because, of course, my optimism about Roak has diminished. Uh, uh, but I'm still I'm in, I'm in very early stages of grief for Roak. I'm still keeping it at, at, at bay, you know, because. Uh, um, uh, I haven't seen it yet, so uh, um, I am I am uh, in the position that Gandalf described. Um, that is, they I I do not have no hope. Um, but that's the most optimism I can I can uh, work up with that. The Bjorn story Brent is asking about: Will Bjorn have a sacrificial death? My bigger question is: Will Bjorn get any screen time at all? Um, <laughs> and know, will the audience I, remember who he was? Right. Um, exactly. Um, because they've barely seen him, especially if they haven't seen the extended edition. And um, uh, we're just instead of having exit pursued by a bear, we're going to have it just bear exit stage right and. Uh, it's that's it. I mean, I, I, my, my, my big fear about Bjorn is just the continued shortchanging of Bjorn. Um, and on the one hand, when our biggest concern and complaint about this third film in, in you know, projection, is that there are so many plots that we don't think they're gonna they're gonna tie together well. It seems churlish of us to criticize them for not expanding yet another plot line um, and adding that to the the complex. Re the complex resolution that's required, but nevertheless, like it certainly is, nevertheless a plot line that I know many of us mourn. Yep. So. I don't know. I really can't think of anything. We need a fourth film. Neil says. Um, I can't think of anything else. Uh, no, I think that's. I think. I think that's good. So that's this was this was this has really helped me. I'm now I'm I'm now ready uh, um, to see the film, and we'll see. Uh, 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 I am uh, I'm afraid that we're not going to be satisfied on all of these points, but I'm hoping to be. You know, I still I hey I'm an optimistic guy. Um, you know, I hope that we shall see some good things about all of these things. But in any yeah, case, we talk I, about. I, go ahead, Dave. Oh no, you go ahead first. Oh well, I was I was going to a logistical thing, so you might if it, if you're still storylining. Oh, I I kind of just sort of as a uh, you know kind of a final comment uh, and question for you two. Um, do you expect to be satisfied and happy with um with the film, but also sort of just the overall trilogy, like uh I because because I I know. I know I like, and I and we've discussed this about the last two films. We've gone and watched them and had lots of positive things to say. And oh, I like this, and this was kind of fun. And 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 people on the internet accuse us of being apologists, right. um, and uh, you know, and just like being a bunch of film fan people. And and I think those are people who who don't parent really don't listen critically, especially to our our. Um, uh, our comments afterward, because um, uh, because I feel like um, 
I feel like in general we don't really like the films. You know what I mean? <laughs> right? Like, like when when people ask, do you you know? So do you like the film or not? Uh, you know, we frequently we end up giving this like it takes five minutes to explain our complicated, <laughs> nuanced position, which boils down to which which for me. Uh, like I was having this conversation at Sunset Beer Company um, last week with a person that I hadn't never talked to this about, who's actually a fairly big Tolkien fan, um, and who was saying like she really didn't like the Hobbit films as much as the Lord of the Ring ones, and she said, you know, it's from from what you know, listening to you talk, it sounds like you really like it, and I and I and and I sort of stepped back and I said. And not really, actually. <laughs> actually, no, I actually don't like it that much. Um, but I have really, really enjoyed the experience of the last three years of talking about them on yeah, Riddles in yeah. the Dark. And I think I've enjoyed them a heck of a lot more as and a result I've, of Yeah, me. I have enjoyed oh. them a lot. And I enjoy watching them and, and talking about them and analyzing them. And as Corey, as Corey frequently says, as adaptations, I like them a lot more. As films... Oh, yeah. <laughs> I don't think they're yeah. that great. <laughs> they're they're wonderful to talk about and think about. Yeah. They're much less wonderful to watch. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and but I find and and I find and I still find the Lord of the Rings films the mirror reverse. Those are yeah. really fun films to watch, um, but they're not fun films to think about. The more I think about them, the the more I think about the Lord of the Rings films, the less I like them. Um, the, the more distant I am from the experience of watching, and the more I think critically about what they actually did, the less I like the Lord of the Rings films. The more I, the more distant I get from the experience of watching the Hobbit mm-hmm. films, the more I like them. Um, yes, be- I have that same experience. I have a different experience seeing them now, you know, and and it, it can be a little bit less upset with them um, right. having yeah. a few years, you know, watching them now. Yeah, so, I mean, it's, 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 so yeah, I mean, in, in that sense, no, I mean, I, I don't, but, but, but this is also why I don't even like to go there. I mean, like, to me, the question of, do I think they're good movies, do, you know, do I enjoy them as movies, that is, for me personally, so secondary, you know, like, no, right. not really, um, but. <laughs> Who cares? That's not, that's not the point. I mean, it's I, I just, like. You know, that's right. You're absolutely right. I mean, I, you know, Guardians of the Galaxy and those kind of movies, I mean, they don't have the same, I, I don't have, I'm, I'm not immersed in their lore. You know, I, I don't know how to explain it, but it's like Tolkien, this is, this is Tolkien we're talking about here. So it's a different, yeah, yeah. it's a different experience. I'm watching the film completely different. Yeah, that is true. Yeah. Uh, man, I love, like, if I'm sitting down on a Friday night, I'm like, I want to rewatch some movie I really like over again. Um <laughs> I'm never going to pick any of the Peter Jackson films. Just, just going to say that. No, uh, right. and very fact, unlikely. It's funny you say that because I, I want to. I know I need to watch, and I want to watch the director's commentary of of Desolation of Smaug. But when I when I'm off work, when I don't, this is not the movie I want to put in my player. No. you know what I mean. It's like I just haven't gotten around to it yet because to me it's kind of like quote unquote work to yeah. do it. You know, you're absolutely right. Now yeah, there's yeah. two things I would say about what you just said. You know because. Uh, listeners may not know this, but Corey and Dave have had to talk me off the ledge a few times <laughs> with regard to the movies, because I've come out of the movies ready to do battle, you know, and 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 or been very like negative. But the thing that I tell people now, and the the one thing that's kind of gotten me okay with watching the movies is that I just keep remembering that the context I've created for these movies is it's like the Bizarro Superman universe. You know, that the movies are like the bizarro 
Middle Earth universe. You know, yeah. it's a Jackson creation. So right. then when I, when I create that context and I remember that, then I can watch the movies separately and not get myself all twisted up, you know, with the lore stuff. Now, the other thing that I will say, though, about the movies are there are certain scenes in the movies oh, yeah. that I really, really enjoy. I enjoy Bilbo's, especially Bilbo's reaction the day after the unexpected party is just wonderful. Riddles in the dark scene, adore yes. it. I even yes. like the Bjorn scene where they're introducing the dwarves, as long as I take it out of the context of them having just slept there the night before, which is what complete makes it not make sense at all. But right. if you just take the scene in and of itself, not bad. So there are certain scenes that I just really, really enjoy. But frankly, I'm expecting to come out of this movie just outraged, frankly. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I don't know. See, to me, I, the way that I kind of think of it is, is, I mean, it's almost like what you're saying about, you know, like it's being work or being fun. Um, right. You know, there are some things which I enjoy thinking about, which I don't necessarily enjoy the experience of, you know? Um, like there are, there are books in which, let me give an example. A book that I really like, or I should say, a book that I really admire and that I really like thinking about is Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment. I find that a fascinating book. Um, I really, really like that book on one level. I like thinking about that book. I like talking about that book. I like teaching that book. I don't enjoy reading that book. <laughs> it's never a book I would pick up to read for pleasure, you know, like uh, if I'm like sick and I've just got to like read a book because I can't do anything else, I'm never reading Crime and Punishment. Like that's not going <laughs> to happen. It's not the kind of enjoyment that I have from it. I don't get pleasure from reading it. I don't get <laughs> Game of Thrones. <laughs> Game of Thrones. Yeah. 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 No. No. It's no. like the complete <laughs> opposite of reading Harry Potter. Harry Potter is like a... I feel like just reading something, just enjoying it. Or Lord of the Rings, same way. I love rereading Lord of the Rings and, exactly. and uh, no, the Hobbit. Me, the, the, Game the, of Thrones see, can't do it. The, the phrase that, 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 it, that keeps coming into my mind is that phrase from Leaf by Niggle, um, when Niggle is in the workhouse, bread instead of jam, right? Um, there uh, are a lot of things which are, which are for me more like bread instead of jam. Um, you know, I, not pleasure exactly, but satisfaction. Um, and I find thinking about and discussing the Hobbit films very satisfying intellectually. Not saying that I agree with everything they do, but even just the process of, yeah. of, 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 of figuring out and explaining why it is that I don't like it. I find it satisfying. Yeah. Much more satisfying, much more interesting than The Lord of the Rings. Than beating up The Lord of the Rings. <laughs> yeah, there is, more, there, is more, there is more bread to be gotten from the Hobbit films in that way. Um, though the Lord of the Rings films are more like jam. Um, of course, the things which are really my favorites, the things that I come back to again and again, are the things which are like jam on bread, right? Um, I do enjoy reading The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit, um, and I also, you know, find them sustaining and interesting to think about. You know, to me, that's one of the things that really defines those books which are, like, at the core of, you know, the books that I love most, you know, books like Watership Down, which I'm currently teaching uh, in the Mythgard Academy class, is for me one of those books, which I, I enjoy more every time I read it, and yet I find it incredibly interesting to think about and talk about. Um, you know, so, 
so this is this is why to me the question of do you like the movie or did you think it was a good movie strikes me as not exactly irrelevant but it's a deeply unsatisfying question um, because it doesn't tell the whole story it's it's like if that's all you care about you know if, yeah. if that's what if that's what you hang your hat on or if your lack of enjoyment you know that kind of what I can't help but think of as more superficial enjoyment if you don't derive a whole lot of pleasure from the experience of viewing the film like, I, I kind of feel like if that's all there is in it to you well okay but that kind of seems to me like a little sad you know I mean yeah. there's there's more to life than jam you know you need bread too and so I, I don't know I, I um, although in fairness in fairness uh, it's a natural question to ask because of course every other film I go watch that's what I people ask did you enjoy it did you like it um, right you know and, and, and actually like... th this whole process rolls in the dark has taught me to look at films slightly more critically, to think about it, especially right. with the, the Marvel films, thinking about adaptation there, although I know the yes. comics much less well than I know Tolkien's books, but still, you know, it's a natural question to ask because I don't watch any other films with near the level of scrutiny that I watch these. Um, right, right. As you've not done three-year podcast yeah, yeah. series on it. But, but it is always, it's always a little, I, I find it always like a, a little strange. When I haven't thought about it in a while, do I like these films? Uh, I, I always find it funny when people ask me this in social situations. And I find myself stumbling around to, to the yes, eventual conclusion. Of, yeah, actually not, I actually don't really like it that much. And people are like, boy, that's surprising given, you know, it's like you just talked <laughs> right. for 15 minutes straight without breathing about all kinds of stuff related to these films only to conclude you didn't enjoy it very much. <laughs> and I think it's one of the things that I, that one of the reasons why I so dislike being asked that question because I feel trapped. It's like yeah. no matter what answer I give to that question, it's going to give a false impression. Mm -hmm. You know, if I say, you know, I really liked them. People are going to think that I thought they're awesome movies, which I don't think they're awesome movies. Yep. If I say, you know, I don't really enjoy it, people are going to think that I'm panning the films in ways that I'm not panning the films. Um, you know, and it's been one, to me, it's been one of the things that I've been frustrated with from the very beginning is um, I feel like the kind of binary answer that people want when they ask me that question, I can't give. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like I'm just waffling or being inconsistent or something. If I try to, or pedantic, which I probably am being, um, when I try to <laughs> when I try to explain uh, the the you know my actual response to it. But to me, it's just so much more complicated than that. But but I mean, honestly, I I mean I don't. One of the things, this is one of the things that I often tell sort of like prospective English majors, like one of the fun things about getting in the habit of reading things carefully and critically, one of the, one of the fruits that you reap from, you know, from being an English major, from, from, from doing this kind of thing, is that you can, in fact, derive much more, um, you know, whether, if, the, if there's a really good movie that you do enjoy, then you can enjoy it much more because you can be enjoying it on different levels. Um, if there's something that isn't very good, then you, there's still there's more that you can get from it if you can just train yourself not to be dismissive of things which, you know, whose, whose sort of externals, you know, or, or, or whose form you don't really like as much. Um, but there's still stuff there. There's always stuff there to talk mm -hmm. about. And mm -hmm. I do find there are there are a bunch of movies 
that I am very interested in that I like a lot, which are not really, which are either not really good movies or are actively really quite bad movies. Um, and uh, but I don't care because they're interesting to think about for some reason or other, you know. So, mm-hmm. yep. Um, but you know, the same can be said about the books themselves. I adore absolutely. Tolkien. I love reading Tolkien. You know, but like Corey, your book about the Hobbit. You know, one in right. particular point to point out is how how bumbling the dwarves are in the book. Yeah. You know? yeah. <laughs> and there's things oh, you know to critically look at in in the in the writing. You know, both of yeah. both the Tolkien and Lord of the Rings, uh, just by themselves. You know, not not including the movies. So yeah, I, and does that mean I don't like Tolkien? No. Are you kidding? Just the opposite. Right. Right. Yeah. So um, I don't so know. I so um. It's a one, vexed question if somebody just it asks. Is. Yeah. That, that I simple. it is. I enjoy doing it too because I I love I love subjecting people to it. <laughs> I love it when like people ask me this in social situations. I'm like, "Oh boy, here we go again. You asked for it. Boy, did you just make a social mistake, my friend?" Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that by no, the end of it, they're just you just waltzed into. Yeah, by the end of it, they're just looking for any 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 way to escape. <laughs> yeah. No, that this yeah. is how I know my real friends. Right. Exactly. Most people are like, "Oh God, just let let well, it end." The people who and are I my. Gotta tell you, I cracked up at Dave's wedding when I stood up to read the, you know, the, the portions of the Lay of Baron Luthien that he wanted me to read, and there were la- there were s- small laughter, small chuckles in the audience yep. when I stood up to read it. I mean, I could tell the people that knew Dave well. Yeah, 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 and yeah, I can I can tell people. I actually, this is a great way to identify new friends. If someone asks you this. <laughs> Says, you know, did you like the Hobbit films? And you do this whole thing. At the end of it, they say, this is this was the response I got last week when I was doing this. The response you get is, wow, you know, I hadn't even thought about that. That's really interesting. That's cool. Like, okay, you can be my friend. Yeah, I'm like, oh, <laughs> oh man, you are you you've instantly jumped right up to at least the top twenty five, probably. Right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, yeah. let me ask another question. I know we're just going on and on again. Um. Uh, and and by the way, this is proof. By the way, for for all you haters out there, that we're not f- uh, film apologists. Because I have friends who've been watching it all this week who've been posting like photos of themselves crying or oh I'm so sad and you know yeah there's the whole one last time tweet and you haven't seen any of us posting anything about how sad we are that this is the end of our saga on Middle Earth or right. posting one last tweet. So so you know we're not film apologists. Um, but uh, but are you guys? Is there? Let's assume for now that this is Peter Jackson's last trip to Middle Earth. Maybe we'll maybe we'll retread that question in a second. But uh, are you feeling sad at all? Uh, are you like, no. oh, this is the end? Nope. Yeah, me all. neither. Not nah. even a little bit. Nope. Um, nope. Me neither. We have bigger we have bigger fish to fry. Yeah. Well, exactly. I I mean, mostly because I feel like first of all. Like when people start talking about like their last trip to Middle Earth, I'm like, "Are you kidding me? Like, I live there. I mean, like, I I I, I reread the books every year. Yeah. I like teach classes on this constantly. Like, the, the the fact that this film is the last film that Peter Jackson is going to make is abs is 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 zero percent diminution of my connection with Middle Earth. No, okay? I so, actually, I actually, man, I I there's like no chance that 
that I'll ever get a civil response from this man if he listens to this podcast. But um, uh, I, I feel a sense of relief. About the end of Riddles in the Dark than they are about the movies. Yeah, <laughs> I feel I feel a little bit of a sense of relief to to go away from the hysteria to back to kind of you know like like enjoying it in a in a more nuanced way. <laughs> to me, it feels more like falling asleep again. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I'm clapping. Yeah. I'm clapping. That was good. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I, 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 I've really, I, I appreciate the Jackson films. You know, for all the reasons that I've just been saying, I love thinking about them. I love talking about them. I love the way in which it has reinvigorated the thinking and talking about Tolkien within our culture. Yes. I will always be yes. grateful uh, for the rejuvenation of even of Tolkien studies as an academic discipline that the movies have been. Um, and the increase of Tolkien's standing within popular culture, uh, within our modern popular, it, it's it's the impact of them. I think has been has been incredibly positive, and I am extremely grateful. But I'm 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 fine being done with that. Um, I, I'm I'm almost like to, in some ways, there's a bigger part of me that is already beginning. To look forward to the next version that somebody else yeah. is going to do in ten to twenty years. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm. There's a bigger part of me already looking forward to the next guy doing it than the part of me that is sad about this ending. And I'm hoping it'll be an indie film company so that we won't have the you know like I ranted about earlier. <laughs> well, what I'm really hoping, what I'm really hoping in general, is that. And this is a hope that's far broader than just about Tolkien movies. I am really hoping that, as as has been happening over the last several decades, as more and more high-tech and high-quality tools are put into the hands of people, you know, yeah. basically as it becomes easier and easier for um, people without multi-million-dollar budgets to do really interesting things with film and graphics. Um, I am indeed hoping for more of a democratization of the film genre mm-hmm. in general. And That's I do think yeah. that that has a really strong potential yeah, um, I do too. for Tolkien stuff in the future. Now, I do want to say, and if, if Dave and Corey and I were actually sitting in the same studio, I would be seeing probably Corey's hand coming to c- cover my mouth at this point. <laughs> but I will say to those of you who are mourning, rightfully, you know, the end of Rules in the Dark, that not only, as Dave said, do we have, you know, we'll, we're going to milk this puppy for a while still, but there's also a big project coming up that you guys are going to love. And the big reveal is going to happen at MythMoot, but you will hear, if you're not at MythMoot, you'll hear about it shortly after that. You'll probably hear about it in tweets and Facebook posts at MythMoot, from people at MythMoot. So, yeah. so do not mourn over long, because... Yeah, yeah this it. is not the end of, of the, the triumvirate. I had a thought right. of something else we could do, uh, and yes. we're working on it. And but the team can't. is not And it's going to be away. awesome. Yeah, That's right. yeah. Yeah, we can't. You're gonna can't, just, you're gonna. What's yet, what's but. the word in Hebrew? Cavell. You're gonna cavell. <laughs> uh, you know, it's yeah. you're gonna be cavelling. It's gonna be just wonderful. So, and and like I say, when when Corey does a reveal, there's actually a part of the agenda for this to Corey to, for do the reveal at Mythmoot. You're gonna be seeing tweets and Facebook posts a, a lot, I'm sure, because the people there are gonna be going, "Oh my God!" Anyway, so. Um, yeah. 
Yeah, no, this is going to be fun. Um, and yes, Robert, this yes, is... Yes, aside from Lotro. This is aside. So, we're going to talk in a second about the Lotro Which stuff already doing, is you know, big, yeah. yeah. Speaking of charisma, Corey says, I live in Middle Earth. I'm like, literally, he lives in Middle Earth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I... It's, Trish it's, lives in Middle Earth. Trish lives in Middle yes. Earth more than I do, yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. I've gotten, like, major addiction. I'm not dreaming about it now. You know, I have dreams. Yeah, yeah. I don't think I dream about it. Like no, no, yeah, 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 yeah. You guys are playing Lotro. Trish is like, uh, uh, you're, you, you named your ranch is inspired by Middle Last Earth. Robot? You're basically yeah. building yourself Middle Earth on your ranch. I am. It's true. Yeah, yeah. Trish I lives in Middle Earth. I have a section that's going to be named Mir Mirkwood. There's going to be there's a part of my property that is like so dense. <laughs> <laughs> that I'm going to have, I'm going to just put a sign that says Merkwood on it. Excellent. Yeah. I like that. That's <laughs> fantastic. Uh, that's amazing. Yeah, it's pretty sick. But hey, you know, I what a great, I mean, what fun. You know, I can't think of, I can't think of any place, I can't think of any other mythical realm that I would prefer, or world that I would prefer to be in. And I can be like Tolkien in his later years. You know, Christopher shared that, um, you know, as or I think or Carter Carpenter did, you know, that as he got older, he lived more and more literally in Middle Earth. I'm thinking, eh, you know, that's I can think of I there's I can't think of many better ways to go, really. So, 20, 30 years from now, I'll just be living in Middle Earth, literally. <laughs> You'll be Radagast the Brown. <clears throat> yeah, that's right. That's right. That's right. You, I won't know who I am. I'll think that I'm my character in in Lotro or something. <laughs> Which one? Yeah, yeah. I know. I'll Let's... pick one. <laughs> um, all right. Uh, one final question. Okay. Uh, one last riddles in the darkian predict. Ah, no. Yeah, we we can talk about this later. I I, I was going to ask the question we we discussed on the tarts uh, the, or on the the tomboy T Rod podcast of what do you think is going to be? Let's let's assume we're going back to Middle Earth in film form. Um, uh, you know, at some point in the near future, uh, what form do you think that'll take? Obviously not Silmarillion, just, you know, for God's sake, once and for all, anybody who's listening, there's not going to be a Silmarillion movie anytime soon, certainly not from Peter Jackson. I so. keep forgetting how few people, like, that most people don't realize this. I mean, I, just, I keep getting shocked by how many times the story of Peter Jackson's comments about how the Tolkien estate owns the rights, <laughs> like, I would never have put that in the category of news. Like, I keep finding it yeah. shocking that that story has had as much life as it has. I mean, it's like, anyway, but yeah, apparently people don't know that. But, yeah, so, um, uh, yeah. um, so, so uh, you know, we, we, the, this is actually an interesting question. Are, if we revisit Middle Earth, is it going to be like a bridge film or, or some jumping off point in the appendices or... Is it more likely that just 10 to 15 years from now they're going to pull a Spider-Man and just reboot the whole thing? I would say the latter is likeliest. Yeah, um, too. I think it would be really interesting for them to do it differently. I yeah. think it would be really interesting to see a Game of Thrones-style um, TV series rather mm -hmm. than feature films, just because the feature film is so limiting <clears throat> in the amount of time you can get. I mean, so I think, and I think that the story itself would lend itself very well um, to, you know, a season of episodes. Mm -hmm. um, I, ju I just, I, I think that that would function very well. 
Um, you, I mean, you could even almost roughly follow, like with the Lord of the Rings, you could even, almost even follow books. roughly the six books. Exactly. That's what I was thinking. Yeah. Six seasons. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, and that I think would be so much better than um, yeah. uh, than more feature films. So, you know, how they do it in this, you know, whether they do it in that longer form, whether they do feature films again, because maybe there's more money in that. Um, I don't know. But, um, but yes, my prediction is the next thing, the next movie, the next Tolkien big thing that comes out will be Fellowship of the Ring reboot would be my prediction in, in some form or other. Do you think uh, if they let's assume they re I don't even know why why are we saying assume reboot uh, naturally they're going to reboot this this is what Hollywood does um, too, it was too successful for it not to be rebooted. yeah yeah do right. you think I'd be curious to see if they do reboot re- reboot this if maybe they might the next person around might decide let's reboot it as a um uh let's reboot it as a six film series. Or 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 miniseries or TV series starting with the Hobbit, right? Mm, right, um, right. Yeah, yeah. I can see that, and in many ways that would work better. I mean, part of the difficulty of the Hobbit films has been having them come sequentially after the Lord yep. of the Rings film. There have been a, a whole world of additional challenges that have been introduced by that fact. Um, so that would make sense. Well, um, especially if the series creators start out knowing that they're going to be doing the whole entire thing. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, that's right. going to make a big difference. And I think that would be really interesting, actually. I also, I, I think it'd be interesting if the next time around somebody decided to just do something very tonally different to make it mm-hmm. to, to, yeah, yeah. Hey, that'd be interesting. What if some, the next guy around's like, all right, let's do it the opposite direction. Let's make The Hobbit. Uh, closer to what the book was like, you know, sort of a children's tale, and then uh, 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 redo Lord of the Rings in the tone of The Hobbit. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, dear. Wow. Yeah. Um, That would be interesting. Yeah. So, like, we just, like, keep keep tra-la-la-la-laying it all the way through, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 We, we, We meet Goadriel and Rivendell and, like, Galadriel is like swinging from the from her knees, uh, from a tree branch, mm-hmm. singing "Tra la la la." Yeah, we could totally, I could totally see that. Yeah, yeah. Wow, yeah, that that would be funny. My fear, I, the thing that I would dread most about a reboot, um, and frankly, the thing that I admire, one of the things that I admire Jackson for most, is I would fear that the reboot would be like the dark and gritty Tolkien. Um, that's the direction that almost everybody goes in reaction to Tolkien. That's the direction that, like, the modern fantasy genre has generally gone in, in reaction to Tolkien. That's the direction that a lot of... Like, that's where, like, the, the, the Shadow of Mordor video game is gone, you yeah. know? Uh, uh, and I mean, that, that's, that's the modern way, is to go darker. Everybody wants darker and grittier. Um, and so that, that, that would be my big fear is that what we would get is something dark and gritty and therefore, um, hopefully not as alien to the entire spirit and concept of Tolkien as the shadow of Mordor is, but, but something more in that direction, something more games, something more Game of Thronesy. Um, I mean, Martin himself is one of the biggest examples of this. 
um, of the that the kind of the the dark and gritty direction of fantasy of 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 modern fantasy. So I really do hope that that doesn't happen. Yeah, I, I would like to see it turned into. I mean, you know, you think about the King Arthur legends and how different movies and television shows yes. have portrayed yes. that. And I would like to see it more uh, along those lines, you know, the, uh, the King Arthur ones that have been more, I don't know, how do I want to say this? Medieval stories, you know, right. the epic, that kind of, they're not dark, you know, they're, they're, they're complex, but they're not dark like Gothamy stories, you know, they're uh, the versions that have been like, like there was, um, who was his name? Polanski's version of the movie Excalibur, which I felt was very dark and very bloody, very Macbethy kind of, you know, hysterical. Oh, that's and... one of my favorite <laughs> movies of all time. Oh man, you know that I used to I used to do a screening of that show every year for my undergraduate Did students really? at Washington College by popular demand because I showed it for my Arthurian literature class once a year, and they. It was so uproariously hilarious to my students that they insisted that we watch it annually, even though it wasn't connected to a class. Oh, how um, funny! Absolutely, oh, that's, yeah. That's interesting that I would pick that one, especially. Oh, well, you know, that actually makes me think that you should probably resurrect that. You know. Oh, absolutely. Um, but but anyway, but no, you're right, and 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 that could be done, and you're right, it could be done in ways that's not just dark and gritty. Um, you know, like for instance. Thinking the Arthurian thing is an excellent example. You get lots of Arthurian films which don't just retell the story in a different tone, but rather retell the story with a different focus. You know, like you get the the selection of Lancelot and Guinevere stories. You know, which are which involve Arthur, but they're primarily Lancelot and Guinevere stories. You get the Merlin stories, right, which really focus right. on Merlin as centerpiece right. and his role and sort of the story as seen from his point of view. Um, you could do that kind of thing with the Lord of the Rings, which might be really interesting. You know, you could do, um, because of course what we're getting, um, explicitly what we're told we're getting, is the Hobbit point of view of the War of the Ring, right? You know, this is, uh, remember the full title of the book as Frodo titles it in The Return of the King, right? The downfall of the Lord of the Rings and the Return of the King as seen by the little people being the memoirs of Bilbo and Frodo of the Shire. Um, uh, you know, so that as seen by the little people, right? That's what yes. we're getting in the Lord of the Rings. We could get a Lord of the Rings story not as seen by the little people, but as seen by the big people, or as seen by the pointy-eared people, or whatever. You know, we, we could get an elven Lord of the Rings story, which really focuses on Elrond or Galadriel. We could get one which, like Merlin, follows Gandalf. We could get one um, which is, to, well, from the dwarf point of view, it would be difficult, um, but we could get like a, a Gondor movie. You know, which really focuses yeah. on Gondor and Rohan, and and really on the on the human, which any one of which could be equally faithful to what we're told in the books, which could really tell a different story with a very different tone. Mm -hmm. And you know, Tim Fisher has actually said, and I think I've mentioned this before because it's been done with Shakespeare as well. I I can see. I don't think the next reboot is going to be this, but I could certainly see down the line a a Lord of the Rings done in quote unquote modern times, a la Sherlock. A la many of the like Joss Whedon's version of uh, which I can't remember as you like it I think he did uh, yeah. recently you know uh, I could certainly see that but I, I think that'll be a while I think that'll be a few iterations down the line that would be pretty interesting yes. 
it would be, be pretty interesting. interesting. I, yeah. I, I, I'm <laughs> Sherlock by itself, especially the first two seasons of Sherlock, gives me like that's that that show is the reason why I don't say ugh no to that idea. Um, in general, I've never really enjoyed modern adaptations of Shakespeare. Um, mostly because the mo- uh, that is to say l- let me let me let me go backwards and reframe or uh, re 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 rephrase i often like like shakespearean films which are based on the shakespeare but, but don't do this they're not the plays right um things like the film o you know the one that took the othello story and made it into like right. a high school drama um I, that i thought was really interesting and i thought that that film generally worked really well i thought it was a really good movie um I like that kind of thing better, like a whole hog adaptation into the modern era, um, rather than the productions which the, do the, where they text, they recite the Shakespeare, in, but exactly, they wear suits and ties. And, but they're dressed up in modern garb. <laughs> I've never really enjoyed those because, to me, I I I, I'm, I, I find a dissonance. Um, between those two things, which doesn't, and part of that is because I'm a medievalist, and so I come at Shakespeare from the other direction. Right. Um, right. But, uh, I, I, but anyway, um, so I find that's so why I find things like Sherlock are, are really good. Um, I, I really like Sherlock, and I was really impressed, uh, especially in the first season, deeply impressed at the work that they did to adapt. Sherlock into the modern world. I like it a lot. Um, there are big, big challenges in for the Lord of the Rings that are not there. I mean, uh, converting from late 19th century to late, you know, to early 21st century is nothing like the conversion from Third Age of Middle Earth into the 21st century. <laughs> um, oh, yeah. I mean, it's yeah. interesting. It's an interesting. It, it is. It is an interesting concept, um, yeah. and and it's not that I'm saying, you know, thanks to Sherlock, I'm not going to say that I uh, um, that I don't think it could possibly be done, and that it shouldn't be attempted. But, but just like um, just like with just like with Shakespeare, and just like with Sherlock Holmes, there were many, many, many productions that stayed yes. stayed, yeah. you know, in in time right. before that happened. And I think right. the thing is true. I think I I think. I think movie makers and you know would be wise to do that same model. Let's stay right. with, you know, let's stay with the times as they are in the books to begin with for a while, and then later maybe get innovative mm-hmm. or novel. Right. Right. Yep. Yep. Um, you can say the same thing about Superman too, actually, and Batman. <laughs> you know, there have been like futuristic versions of those stories now put out. Right, right. Though again, the difference in the remoteness, and I agree. You know, Sharon Hoff is saying that uh, you know Tolkien's world is so embedded in the time and place um, of Middle Earth. Yeah. Um, uh, you know that the the and and especially of course thinking about you know Tolkien's own views on the modern world and and the things that he was reacting against in many of the ways in which he depicted Middle Earth. Those things would make it additionally challenging. Um, to do that and to do that in a really thoughtful and respectful way. Um, so I agree, Sharon. I think that the, the, um, the challenges are far, far larger. I mean, again, you think about the gap between like 1950s Superman and now are significant, but not like that, you know, right. the, the time between Victorian Baker street and now 
are big, but not like that. No, um, right. So I. Uh, I suppose you know. I suppose again, the analogy would be the Arthurian legends. Could you could you do an Arthurian? Could you do a Merlin? Oh, absolutely. Could you do an Arthur twenty first century. You absolutely could. And that, yeah. that and that's a that's that's a project that people have done. I, you know, that's actually odd. I can't think of a really good example. Mm -mm. Not like I can Sherlock or, or, or Austin. Yeah, there's no yeah. there's no parallel to Sherlock. Get on that, people. That, that <laughs> happen. Do that um, before you do Lord done. Of it's been done, but it's it's uh, it's it's not been done well. Yeah. Um, I don't think anyway. Um, uh, anyway. Anyway, yeah, I, moving I, on. I, we should probably wind this up. I think I think all three of us are sort of dragging our feet here because we just don't. This quite is the last episode, and we don't want it to end. Yeah. yeah, we're not gonna we're not gonna. None of us are gonna weep bitter tears about moving on from. Uh, uh, Jackson's films, but uh, we are clearly reluctant to end the last yeah. <laughs> well, Our mantra all along has been the less information, the better. And the film's like the ultimate source of information. So, Right, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But like okay. we say, we do have other fun things to move on to, yes, which do. sort we of do. segues us into I personally think more fun things, but... Yes, yeah, it will be yeah. even more fun, I agree. What we have planned. Um, yeah. Yeah, good, good. Okay, um, so let's let's do announcements because it, it is time to all things must come to an end, and not all tears are an evil. So let's 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 move <laughs> on. Um, uh, first announcement: very very soon. I feel like I've been saying this forever. Uh, very very soon, we are going to be announcing the spring courses uh, for uh, Mythgard. So be on the lookout for that. Um, uh, uh, very the, exciting spring courses. The, I just the the. Highlight of the, I mean, we've got you know for, certainly for 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 this audience, um, uh, Amy Sturgis is doing her science fiction class, um, uh, the continuation for science fiction class, which is just awesome. Um, but certainly for Tolkien people, the biggest news uh, of the spring semester is Tom Shippey is teaching his class on Beowulf. So you're going to be an in-depth study of Beowulf and Tolkien's <laughs> Tolkien's translation and commentaries, as well as, of course, a, a very in-depth consideration of the text with Shippey. Um, it's going to be uh, fantastic. So um, that's that's the, the sort of major feature. We've had a, a very recent uh, change of plans, and that's actually those two classes are going to be the only new ones that we're offering, although um, a, an opportunity to do an introduction if you've if you've ever wanted to learn Old English to be able to read Beowulf in the original. Um, we will be having uh, an intro to Anglo-Saxon class um, taught by Michael Drought, which will be released soon. So uh, the spring semester is going to be like the semester of uh, Anglo-Saxon uh, at Mythgard. So it, that's very exciting. So be on the lookout for that. The registration for those courses should start very soon. I hope by the end of this coming week. Um, uh, in other news, uh, Mythmoot. We are we're now beginning to count down to Mythmoot. We're getting excited. We're, we're just having a fun conversation with our um, our guest of honor for Mythmoot this past week, um, and uh, Trish can tell you about that. We're yeah um, yeah. We're, the, 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 our guest of honor is Chris Pearson, who is the senior lore master at Turbine, the Lord of the Rings Online company. Um, he's the guy who has been primarily responsible for the world building 
of Lotro. He's not the guy who writes the stories. He doesn't do the epic quest lines and stuff like that. He's the guy who is basically the primary architect of the world, building it and its relationship with uh, with Tolkien's stories. Um, so we're going to have him at Mythmoot talking about adaptation and his world building process and the relationship between Lotro and Tolkien's works. And so I can be, promise yeah. you that you don't even have to ever have set foot in Lotro ever yeah. play the game or ever plan to play the game and, and find this guy fascinating. Because think about what it takes to subcreate Tolkien subcreation. I think it's just going to be such an interesting you know, yeah. in, in conversation with him. Yeah, yeah, and it's going to be fun. I'm really, I'm really looking forward to that. We're going to have a couple sessions with him. He's going to be giving a, giving a talk about, you know, the process of building the Lotro world, and, um, you know, going to be, you know, showing some, uh, showing some, some, some shots and doing some explanations, uh, for people who aren't familiar with it, and, uh, and he and I are going to have a conversation, sort of a more in-depth conversation about you know, the world and thinking about the relationship between its world and Tolkien's world. Um, we're going to be focusing in, I think we're going to be focusing in on the Lotro depiction of the Breelands as a kind of case study um, and looking at what Tolkien says about the Breelands, how they built on that and incorporated that and the way that the, you know, so sort of taking the, uh, taking the Breelands as an illustration of kind of the world building that they're doing and the, the, adap the adaptation process. Um, so that's uh that should be that should be really that should be really fun um uh so yeah so that, that that's going to be that's going to be the centerpiece just you know continuing to think about you know response and adaptation uh to tolkien's work as we've been doing you know that's been the sort of major dominant um you know substrata of our riddles in the dark conversation from the beginning um and that's what we're going to be doing at Mythmoot this year. So it's going to be, it's, it's, it's going to be, and of Robert, course we will talk about the, the Hobbit movie as well, obviously. We get asked this a lot, but I, we have no plans to record at Mythmoot at this point. It just adds another layer of complexity to, to Yeah, it's very record. difficult in live events like that. And yeah. uh, so, but we'll certainly talk about it and we'll have yeah. people doing uh, lots of reporting. And maybe it. we can get Chris on a podcast at some point. Yeah. Yeah. That would be good. Yeah, fun. we'll see if we can do a follow-up with him yeah. um, podcast as well. Um, and speaking of Lotro, as we're sort of building towards this, um, the, the, I have been, as I have, uh, I heard Chris Pearson speak um, at MythCon in August, and hearing him talk about the work of adaptation and world-building that he has done in Lotro really piqued my curiosity um, and finally pushed me over the line um, uh to uh, it, it, fi it finally pu pushed me over the line to to get into the game and start playing and looking at it myself. And as I've been doing that, it's I've been uh, I've I've been even more fascinated by it. I find not only Chris Pearson's world building, um, but the stories that they're telling, the epic storyline that they have sort of woven into the game, and the way the way that that's related to the main plot lines of the Lord of the Rings is really fascinating. I I, I think the work that they've done is really really interesting. So what I've been what I'm building towards, and I just uh, announced this, we've started in the last couple of weeks. Uh, having what we call Mythgard Mondays uh, in Lotro, where a bunch of people, um, anybody who wants to, meets up with me on the Landreval server, and uh, Trish and I have both been there, and we go off and uh, and sort of quest and explore, and, you know, as I'm still discovering the world, a lot of people are kind of helping me to find things that I haven't found and to get to places that I haven't been um, as I begin to sort of learn more about it. And at uh, on Mythgard Monday this past week, I was announcing my plans uh, for 
next year. Because and we, we've been, we haven't really been announcing it really a whole lot because yeah. you know we're kind of still feeling our way on this thing. So we've been a little careful about like not promoting it too much. Right. So go exactly. ahead, Corey. You can. But anyway, so in the end, <laughs> what I'm what I'm building towards is I wanted. To, I'm I am interested to do something that basically like a Mythgard Academy class on Lotro, um, you know, a, a, an open class where we go through, not, it's not a class on the video game itself, but looking, you know, doing a lot of reading of Tolkien's primary You're not going to be teaching them the mechanics of... No. no I'm not going to be teaching them, like, how most effectively to level up and, uh, uh, you know, and, and, I'm not going to be talking about strategy and video game tactics. <clears throat> I'm going to be talking about adaptation. We're going to be reading Tolkien's, uh, you know, the relevant parts of Tolkien's books, looking at the Lotro world kind of area by area, thinking about no. the adaptation and world building and storylines and the relationships with Tolkien's works. Though um, I will say, if people want to start, if people do want to play Lotro and join Corey to do this, people in the Mythgard kinship are available yes. to help people yes. learn how to play the game, you know, how to do it effectively and all that stuff. So there is so, that Yes, support. Yes, you can also, if you are interested just in exploring the game, we encourage you to, uh, uh, to look up the Mythgard kinship. We're on the Landreval server and uh, you'd be w welcome to join our kinship, and, and you would certainly be able there to find people who'd be able to help you. And we have you a, a site you can things. go to, mythgard.guildlaunch.com. That's yes. open to anybody to come see. And Yeah, so uh, anyway. anyway. So anyway, yeah, this has been one of the things that I've been, I've been sort of fascinated by um, is sort of thinking of, and again, and I'm, I'm interested in it for very similar reasons to why, to the interest that I have taken in Jackson's films. Um, it raises so many interesting questions, even if I don't always agree with all of the choices they make. Um, observing the choices they make and thinking about the question, you know, the questions that they raise, um, you know, the questions of like, you know, what would the other, you know, thinking of the Breelands, right? We spend, in, in The Lord of the Rings, we spend some time in, in Bree. At least we spend some time at the Prancing Pony. Um, but what are the other Bree towns like? What is the culture of the Bree area? We're told some things about it. We're given a couple paragraphs describing it. But what would it look like? What would all the lands around it look like? Um, right. What is, you know, what would be the relationship between there and the Shire? You know, and thinking about the the, the the larger um, the larger situation geographically as well as sort of politically and historically you know around what what, what would be you know one of the things that I am, am really fascinated by um, is sort of all of the evidence of kind of the remnants of our Norian culture that we get in these lands um, which makes a lot of sense which Tolkien doesn't yeah. emphasize a lot, but in the context of all of the, the history that Tolkien has written for there, it makes a lot of sense, actually. Or, or another example I like is the fact that, well, you know, Saruman has to be having gaining a foothold in this area for quite a while. You know, he doesn't just suddenly pop up and he's sharky and, you know, is in charge. So, right. you know, in the game, I mean, it's a lot of the p things you have to go do are to k kind of sort of head off these people who are part of Saruman's, in Saruman's employ. You know, yes. we're getting a foothold in Bree and in the Shire. It's, it's interesting. It's really interesting. I mean, there's yeah, a context to it all. It's very thoughtful and, 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 and very interesting. So I'm definitely, um, I'm, you know, that, that's, been, that's been my my main focus. I enjoy playing the game, but I've been, I've been doing a lot of, you know, exploring and, and looking through the way that they're building the world, and I'm, I'm, uh, I'm trying to be pretty thorough in it. So, um, anyway, so this is, this is ultimately what, what we're building towards. There's probably going to be an intermediate uh, 
stage where we're going to be doing, or I'm going to be doing some live broadcasts from within game, you know, giving some commentary and talking about things. So there'll be lots of opportunities to do more stuff with uh, with this. So that's another thing that we're thinking now. But, but as Robert was asking before, the big thing coming next, the big plan that we have for wh what we're going to do after Riddles in the Dark is not this. Um, the, this special <laughs> thing is in addition to the big new thing that we're planning to do. So Corey's not day. teaching any courses next year in the sense of courses in Mythgard, but he is doing oh, yeah, I will. these, I'll do these that too. courses too. <laughs> You'll do that too. Because, ah! you know, I'm, I'm, I've got, I've got, I need something to fill my idle hours. But anyway, um, I, uh, um, but yeah, no, I will be. By the way, by the way, I want to let you know, Rachel Hickson just mentioned, Rachel is one of the people in the kinship um, who's also very, you know, she's a Riddles in the Dark listener. She said she's catching up listening to Riddles in the Dark while playing the game. So she's turned the music down. She's turned all the audio in the game down. She's listening to Riddles oh my God, what a way to play. It would be really, it would, it would be really surreal for her to be doing that, like while she was questing with us, which she's done several times. Oh, and Megan said uh, she was doing that yesterday too. Oh my goodness. <laughs> yeah. Oh my yeah. goodness. Yeah, well, yeah. So Megan, be careful because you might be listening to me and Trish talk and then run into one of us in the game. So, you know, <laughs> that would be surreal. <laughs> <laughs> it could happen. Um, Anyway, so uh, I think those are all our announcements yep. for now. Lots of stuff going on, uh, both in the short term and the long term here, and uh, and we're looking. So we will plan on we'll plan on a Thursday session next week for the immediate response. Uh, oh, and, to the and I'll put uh, for those that are not on Facebook or you know uh, what I'm going to do is get the times nailed down for the two post movies sessions Thursday and Saturday yeah. Corey will let me know the times and the registration links and I'll put them up in the forum on Signum so it's signumuniversity.org student forums if you look under student in the uh, in the navigation you'll see the student forums and it's uh, Mythgard in the community there's a topic under there where uh, where these will be listed so you'll be able to get yeah. the, the times and I, I, and the, I will also announce the the theater and time in which I plan to go. If you want to, uh, you know, a couple of people have been joking about, like, uh, you know, Tim Fisher was especially knowing what he knows because he's already seen it, talking about wanting to see my initial reaction. If you want to be with me the first time <laughs> I see the film, you're invited. I, I, you can come see the midnight showing with me. I, 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 I'll probably go see it in Merrimack, New Hampshire. So, uh, you know, if anyone who's in the region who wants to come in and see the film with me, I'd be happy to, you know, I'd be happy to, so I'll post the, you know, when I'm going to be there and we can meet up, but, um, um, yeah, yeah, that'd be cool. You can hang out with me and my nephews. Um, but, uh. Oh, Neil, uh, so Neil has posted the uh, Maryland-Virginia meetup. Neil, if you would put that in the forum, that would be yes. great. Yes, very uh, good. Please do enter that in there so people can see it. Yeah, excellent. Yeah, I figured the Mid-Atlantic people would be getting together. Well organized, yeah. Yeah. And of course, Dave, please put in your Hong Kong information as well. Absolutely. On that, on that thread. Yeah. Sure. Okay, I will. <laughs> want to make sure that every single one of our listeners in Hong Kong uh, knows where they can go to see the movie with you. I'll be excited. I'll be excited and for if that we... matter. I'll put mine on too. Just someone because. pops up. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Cool. cool. All right. Well, then I think the time has come uh, <laughs> here on the shores of Middle Earth. Um, uh, I, I shall not say do not weep. Um, goodbye until if the I next. Had, if I had if I had rights to use it, I would use Billy Boyd's song as the outro for this. <laughs> it's goodbye until the next ending. 
That's Goodbye. right, until the next ending. Until, until the next ending, exactly. Okay, well, thanks, everybody. and God's, Thanks for listening, and Godspeed.